hey, this is Hear This Idea. In this episode, I spoke with Saloni Datani. Saloni is a researcher at Our World in Data. She's a founder and editor at the online magazine Works in Progress. And she has a PhD in psychiatric genetics from King's College London. So for most of this episode, we talked about vaccines for malaria. Talked about why they are such a big deal, uh, what it actually takes to develop and deploy a vaccine, and also why it took so long to develop the first approved vaccine for malaria that was recommended by the WHO in 2021, and also how we can speed up life-saving science like vaccine development. Uh, the timing was kind of funny on this one. It literally took more than a century to develop the first malaria vaccine, including more than 20 years in trials waiting for approval before it was recommended by the WHO. Uh, and then the second ever uh, malaria vaccine, so-called R21 vaccine, was recommended by the WHO last week. So malaria vaccine has got back in the news again since we recorded this. We also talked about the history of malaria, talked about DDT and whether insecticide spraying campaigns could maybe have eliminated malaria in more parts of the world uh, before they were scaled back, and also about mosquito gene drives. After that, we talked about missing data in global health, like how about 50,000 deaths per year from snake bites in India went pretty much totally uncounted by health agencies. Also, uh, why we're still crazily uncertain about the real excess mortality from COVID in especially poor countries, and also uh, the so-called million deaths study. Saloni is, in my opinion, one of the best and clearest science writers out there, and this was predictably great. So without further ado, here's Saloni Datani. Saloni, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Great. We have so much to talk about. Maybe one question is whether you could say something about what happens when someone contracts malaria. What is that like? Sure. Malaria is quite a complicated uh, disease. Um, it's caused by a parasite. And what happens is when you get infected by it through mosquito bites, um, the parasite invades your liver and then starts to multiply and invades your red blood cells. Your red blood cells eventually burst because of how much it multiplies and the other proteins it um, exudes. And then you get fevers and chills, uh, headaches um, from that reaction, like just losing all that blood and having all these um, blood cells burst is quite harmful for the body. In some cases, it also uh, manages to cross the blood-brain barrier and that can cause comas and that can lead to death. Um, but there are all sorts of other symptoms that arise because of this whole, um, all of these consequences. So your spleen might enlarge, um, your liver gets damaged, um, and so on. I'm curious, one thing um, that I often hear in uh, relation to malaria is that uh, children are like particularly susceptible to it, which from a like global health, like public health perspective, uh, makes it like an especially important disease to combat because there are so many you know life years at stake. Um, I'm curious why compared to other diseases and children perhaps seem more susceptible to it. Yeah, good question. Um, so I think in general, a lot of infectious diseases are quite harmful and fatal to children. Uh, one reason for that is that children's immune systems develop quite slowly, um, and so they take a while to mature. But also because in places where malaria is quite prevalent, people are often getting infected year after year. So they eventually develop some level of immunity towards it. 
Um, and children are just too young to have developed that. Mm. So they're particularly vulnerable. So I guess in this conversation, we'll try to very roughly move through some of the history of how we responded to malaria. Um, and with that in mind, maybe we could begin just by getting a sense of um, how many people malaria was affecting in, let's just say, like the early 19th century and like where was it most prevalent compared to today? Yeah, great question. Um, it's actually surprisingly hard to find like global numbers at that at that level, like um, in the past. Um, the problem is just it's quite hard to detect because often your symptoms are things like fevers and it's like hard to know how many people with fevers have malaria specifically, um, especially in poor countries when health infrastructure was not very well developed. But we do have a good sense of like how far it um, how far it was distributed in the past. So malaria was very common in um, Italy, Greece, um, South, uh, the southern states in the US, um, South America, most of Africa and South Asia. Um, and that just gradually uh, began to decline with these um, malaria control programs that we'll mm -hmm. talk about. Got it. And I guess a part of the difficulty in understanding the distribution of malaria was that we didn't know what caused it until relatively recently. So what causes malaria? Yeah, yeah. It's surprising how recent this was in history. Um, so malaria has obviously affected people for millennia, um, but it was only discovered in the 18, in 1880 that it was caused by a parasite. Um, so I think one of the reasons for this is it's obviously quite small. It's also quite difficult in general to figure out what causes a disease. You don't, mm. not everyone with malaria can easily be like, we can't easily spot the parasites in their blood um, just because it goes through these different stages and is not always present in your blood. Like sometimes it's in your liver. Um, but also in general, people had like some rough idea of where it came from. So people knew that it was related to swamps and marshes mm -hmm. somehow. Um, they thought that it was caused by a noxious gas mm -hmm. instead of... Um, so this is where the name comes from? Yeah, exactly. So malaria comes from bad air. Um, and so it was only in 1880, um, kind of in the heyday of germ theory, when this French doctor called Charles Laveran discovered that it was caused by a parasite. Um, and he looked under the microscope at like blood samples from patients and saw these living parasitic organisms uh, just changing shape and like, um, you know, bursting these cells open. Was that around the time then as well of linking it to the mosquito? Did those two discoveries kind yeah. of go, go hand uh, in hand? Yeah, they were very close. So in fact, the parasite was discovered before the mosquito oh, right. um, okay. was discovered to transmit it. Um, but I think it was, it was almost that knowing that it was caused by this parasite helped to mm. figure out that it was caused by... Um, mosquitoes because you could see the female Anopheles mosquitoes carry these parasites in their gut. Mm. Um, and also people used challenge trials back then yeah. to infect other people with the parasite through mosquitoes. Okay. So that was a confirmation that it was spread by mosquitoes. Yeah. Potentially dumb question. I understand a parasite is not the same thing as a virus or as um, an infection caused by bacteria. So what is a parasite? <laughs> right. Um, great question. So parasite is like, 
It's not exactly um, it's the technical phrase that's used for this, but I think it's quite useful. So um, it's technically a protist. So a protist is just a, it's like a bigger organism. So viruses are very small, bacteria are larger, mm -hmm. and protists or parasites are even larger than that. So they're kind of unicellular organisms mm -hmm. or um, that have like a whole life cycle. In this case, they... Um, they depend on surviving through different species. Mm -hmm. So a parasite will first infect mosquitoes. Um, it transforms in some ways, like matures, and then it infects humans, and then it goes back into mosquitoes. So to do a whole life cycle and to have its whole generation, it needs to be passing through multiple species. How does something like that evolve that feels like such a convoluted like organism to exist in the world? I actually don't know the answer to that, but there are a lot of other examples, um, especially like parasitic worms where mm. they have their life cycle in different organisms. So for example, guinea worm um, spends some of its time in humans, but also in cope pods, which are these like tiny um, aquatic like mm. animals that, yeah. Also just quickly, so you say that it passes from mosquitoes to humans and then back mm -hmm. to mosquitoes? Yeah. Um, how does it pass back to mosquitoes? We get infected by the parasite through mosquito bites. It then multiplies, gets into our liver, and then our red blood cells. Um, then it goes through these cycles. So it sometimes um, will like multiply into more parasitic organisms that then infect other red blood cells. And so you get these like repeated fevers. Mm -hmm. But some of the parasites then go a different direction and um, develop into sex cells. Mm. And then those sex cells then get sucked up by another mosquito. And okay. then they fertilize each other um, yeah. and restart the whole life cycle. Okay. One last uh, science corner question I have is like, why um, does malaria get passed on by female mosquitoes in particular? I actually didn't know this until recently, but female mosquitoes are the only sex of mosquitoes that, um, that bite humans. Okay. And um, they they do that just to like they need iron and other other nutrients from our body for their eggs to develop. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that's the reason they like female mosquitoes are also the only cause of other mosquito borne diseases. Okay, so since we're doing some kind of malaria history, I want to ask what did early treatments and prevention look like for uh, malaria. In the same way that like people knew roughly that it was kind of spread around swamps and marshes, people had a few like rough ideas of uh, like herbs and plants that were protective in some ways. So for example, um, quinine is was one of the most, that was the earliest treatment that was found against malaria, yeah. but it came from the kinchona tree in the Andean forests, I think. Um, in South America. Mm. And that was used, I think, by Native Americans, but also discovered by European missionaries um, who then spread it across the world. Um, and then based on that, so quinine was something that, or like the the conchona tree bark was something that we knew worked. We didn't really figure out why until mm. um, I think the 1820s. Um, and at that point, people discovered the specific molecule within that called quinine that worked. Um, 
And then eventually that led to these other synthetic compounds that were similar in structure to that. Um, so chloroquine was one of them, um, and then hydroxychloroquine. Um, but there are also other treatments. So artemisinin is one of them, and that was found in Chinese herbal medicine mm. like sent like centuries ago. Um, but it was only identified, the specific molecule was only identified in the 1970s, I think. Yeah. Wasn't hydroxychloroquine like one of these miraculous COVID cures? Right, that right? <laughs> one of the quack cures. Cool. And then also in your article, you mentioned that malaria itself was used as a treatment for other diseases. Do you want to say something about that? Basically, the reason for this is that malaria's fevers are like it causes such high temperatures um, through fevers that it can kill other bacteria and viruses in your body that can't survive at those temperatures. So it was used for treating syphilis in the 1920s to 40s. Um, this Austrian scientist discovered that syphilis patients would some, sometimes just get cured if they caught another infection. Um, and he decided to try out um, infecting them with malaria to see if that was... Um, um, what, that what, what's the mechanism there? Like, why, do, why would that work? It's just the temperature. So malaria causes fevers. Right. Fevers cause high temperature, and they also cause your body to react, um, just develop a much stronger immune response mm. to something. Um, and that clears the bacteria, which can't survive. Yeah. I guess that's kind of the idea of fevers, right? It's like the yeah. body will survive, but maybe the... Yeah. And so it is like a fairly risky treatment procedure yeah. um, and was then replaced by penicillin when that mm -hmm. became mass manufactured. But for a time, that was the treatment. Mm. Looking at um, disease eradication then, so actually getting rid of malaria, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the interview, lots of regions that now no longer have malaria or no longer have it, like at least um, very prevalent. You mentioned Italy, Greece, mm -hmm. uh, and, and others as well. I'm curious how much of that can be explained by dedicated efforts to eliminate malaria um, versus just a byproduct of general economic growth? These were definitely like concerted efforts to get rid of malaria specifically. Um, and most of them involved uh, spraying insecticides indoors and um, like agriculturally. So DDT, the big pesticide um, that's now quite controversial, um, was developed <laughs> in, <laughs> um, in the late 1930s. And it was just much more effective than any other insecticide that had been used before. Mm -hmm. So you could spray it on walls in, in your house and its effects would last for months. You wouldn't have to keep respraying. And it was also cheap and easy to manufacture in very large quantities. And so a lot of countries uh, in the 1940s started, a lot of rich countries started using it to just get rid of malaria um, locally. and. The problem with doing this was that different countries would do it at different speeds. So say mm. you had like one region have a huge um, insecticide spraying campaign and then the next region didn't, you then would, you would be at risk of um, having the mosquitoes travel back or spread again. And so there was then this desire to have a more global coordinated campaign to get rid of it mm. across entire regions and worldwide. And just checking, you mentioned 1940s there. Is that like right after World War II? Is that uh, during, during World War II? So yeah. it was developed in 1939, I think. And then 
uh, imported to the U.S. in 1942, I think. And okay. so throughout the 1940s, um, it was just used across a lot of countries. Just wondered if you could say something about what other kinds of like treatments and prevention methods do we actually use nowadays? Right. Um, so we use a lot of anti-malarials like we um, described. So quinine, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, um, artemisinin, and like it's often the case that like each of these treatments specifically, you, you might have the parasite or the insects develop resistance against them. And so the, we often use combination therapies where it's like several. So it's harder for the parasite to develop a to evolve resistance. Um, and then there's bed nets. Um, so bed nets just protect people sleeping from getting bitten by mosquitoes. Some of them are insecticide treatment um, mm. treated bed nets, and those are much more effective and last for longer. Um, and then there are other measures to control mosquito distribution. So like clearing out swamps and mm. like stagnant water and things like that. Yep. Okay, got it. Let's talk about Insecticides, you mentioned it already, um, and you mentioned DDT in particular, which seems like a pretty important part of this story. So maybe you could say something about how DDT was first discovered and what made it look so promising. Sure. Um, yeah, it's like it's quite a fascinating story because it's not something that really came out of academic research. It was more of a industry, um, like a compound that was used in industry and not for public health. So uh, a lot of researchers in the fabrics and like dye industry were interested in finding insecticides to prevent moths from eating um, fabric, essentially. Um, and they had found some organic compounds from, uh, from like natural environments, but also they had recognized that within coal tar, you could find a bunch of... So coal tar is just thousands of different components of things that have been like yeah. degraded okay. over time. And coal tar contained a few insecticides that people had figured out how to extract. Um, and then these um, chemists in this pharmaceutical company called Geige um, in Switzerland, they just tried to test out hundreds of different chemicals in coal tar, just one by one. Uh, they just extract and develop them and then test whether they'd kill insects. Um, and eventually they came upon one that was very effective and that was DDT. Mm. Um, and it turned out like quite easy to do this extraction, like coal tar is also quite easy to um, have in large quantities. And so you could extract and mass manufacture this quite cheaply. And who would be the consumers for this? So would this should I imagine like, you know, average household buying this in order to like get rid of their mosquitoes? Was this like concerted like government actions and, and public campaigns? Uh so it would be a range of different uses. So just because it could be used in so many different ways, like part of some of the users would be the military. So just you could you could have it as spray, you could have it as powder, um, aerosol. And so you would some, sometimes people would be spraying it in their houses to mm. to get rid of insects. Um, you could also just have it in your clothes, like laced up and like for military um, personnel. Um, but also it was used agriculturally to just get rid of various pests and stuff. Mm. And um, yeah, in farms. So I would have thought that there are a bunch of um, 
chemicals that are fairly easy to manufacture and which really effectively kill insects. Presumably DDT had other properties that made it like more desirable as an insecticide. wonder what they are. There are different things. So I think there had been some research into its effects in humans and mammals um, in the 1940s. And it seemed like it was very widely effective against many insects um, and also some aquatic animals and birds. Um, so it was harmful for a lot of other species, but not very harmful for mammals or humans, mm-hmm. um, at least according to this early research. And so that was one big drive. The other was just how many different ways you could prepare it. So you could use it in sprays and um powders and so on. Um, and then thirdly, it was just much more effective than the others. So it its effects lasted for we- for months, whereas the others would last for weeks and you just have to keep spraying over and over again. I guess the next question is like, what happens next after DDT was first discovered? Um, you mentioned a bit about spraying campaigns, but I guess what was the sequence there? So as we talked about, we had these localized campaigns to spray DDT um, across different regions, um, and those were very quickly effective. So um, in Sardinia, for example, that was the first region that uh, where they just eliminated malaria within <laughs> four years. Um, there was just this big public health effort to just try to see whether you could do that in an island. And explicitly getting rid of malaria as opposed to yeah. getting rid of like other you yeah. know, bad effects from mosquitoes or something. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of a proof of principle and a lot of other countries then followed suit and tried mm-hmm. to eliminate it in their own in their own like um within their borders. And so you had like the US eliminated malaria in nineteen fifty one and various other countries. Yeah. Um but soon you saw some insects and even these Anopheles mosquitoes that spread malaria started to develop resistance to to it. Mm-hmm. So the insect the insecticide spraying campaigns that were very effective before stopped being effective or were just much less. And so there was this desire to just coordinate across different countries and also just do it really quickly so that they wouldn't have time mm. to develop resistance. Yeah, one thing I'm curious about on that point is I mean, suppose I'm Sardinia and I do just eradicate this relevant species of mosquitoes. Um, is that relatively locked in after that point? Or do I need to make sure I'm like still spraying the right places because maybe mosquitoes get like re-imported some a gap in the ecosystem or yeah. something? So there were some countries where there were resurgences, I think in the US um, and like various European countries that hasn't really been the case. Mm. Um, but I think they also had a much stronger public health, um, like screening and infrastructure system, where they would also be monitoring for new cases, even if they were rare. Mm-hmm. And so just trying to get rid of those as soon as they arose. So I guess this is presumably what actually happens in, for instance, the south of the US. Yeah. Um, they'll just like notice if there's a resurgence and right, exactly. Quash it. What was the like public reaction or like even compliance is like maybe the word here, like in the late 40s or early 50s? I know we're going to get to some mm-hmm. controversy down the line, but I'm curious, like when these campaigns were first happening, right. um, did that require public like uh, compliance and uh, coordination um, or like could it be pretty top down? Like it was kind of marketed as this like huge uh, success story off mm. like off this like post-World War 
it was this it was this idea that you could now get rid of diseases that yeah. you, that um, had affected us for centuries or millennia, um, and so there was just a lot of uptake or like popular support for it at the time, um, just like people spraying it everywhere, people spraying it in like swimming pools and like lakes and things like that as well, yeah. um, just because they thought it was like so effective and like so powerful in a way that mm. like the other insecticide hadn't been. So, okay, DDT is discovered. There's a bunch of uncoordinated spraying campaigns, which are regional. Then people notice that mosquitoes are building up some amount of resistance to DDT. And so that causes more urgency for more coordinated um, spraying campaigns. Yeah. Say more about that. Did that lead to anything concrete? Yeah, so that then led to, um, basically, there was this idea that we have to coordinate this at a global scale. Um, we don't want malaria to come back, um, and we have to get rid of it quickly before resistance develops. Um, and so there was push for some kind of international effort, and eventually the World Health uh, Organization um, set up this global malaria eradication program that began in 1955. Um and I think looking back, we can say like a lot of the way, like the way that it was designed was not very effective. And like there were a lot of shortcomings with the strategy. I think they were quite hopeful that it would be over quickly so that the mm -hmm. plan was for malaria to just be eradicated, like eliminated in some countries within seven years or so and worldwide in about 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, and that obviously didn't happen since we still have malaria today. Um, but we can also talk about how the whole program went. Yeah, I mean, just quickly, I'd be interested. How was it structured? What was the plan? Right. So the plan was essentially just focus on DDT. DDT was this like all-powerful insecticide. Um, and there were also other insecticides that were used. Um, but essentially, it was just focus on spraying campaigns. And so what the World Health Organization suggested was for malaria researchers to turn into operators and managers of mm. this program. So they were the most knowledgeable about how malaria spread. Um, and so they should be the ones leading the program. And so there was this kind of withdrawal from a lot of research, mm -hmm. um, which I think was a mistake at the time, just partly because they didn't actually see other things. They didn't really see how much resistance was developing to these insecticides, but also didn't learn other things about malaria and the spread of it that might have changed like how effective the yeah. program was. What, what kind of research were these researchers switching over from? So it was it would be things like um, developing other treatments or developing um, like potentially working on animal models for a vaccine later on and just any kind of epidemiological like mm -hmm. how does it spread why is resistance spreading from each generation of mosquitoes to the next and so on looking at the the program as a whole how precedented was this like type of global public health coordination were there examples of this before i don't know for example uh, you know with previous pandemics or like the 1919 like influenza outbreak whether you had that same coordination um attempts or like was was the yeah there any like model um, that this could have been based on before there was also an eradication program for yaws um that's another 
uh, disease that now only really affects like the global poor. And that also failed and that was also stimulated by this big new um, treatment mm. for it. So it, there was precedent for it, but it was also one of the earliest eradication efforts. When did that happen or when was that? So the yours control program was from the 1950s to 60s. Mm. And so that was just a few years before this one began. Okay. Um, yeah. But both of them eventually failed. Um, and that wasn't, I guess there was like this new powerful drug that we could now use um, for yours and also for um, with DDT for malaria. And I think that it sort of seemed like it was a game changer that would allow us to get the whole way to the goal. So this WHO Global Malaria Eradication Program, High Hopes, did not fully succeed. Was there a clear reason why? Uh, so I think there were a lot of reasons. Um, I think one of them was just this withdrawal of researchers um, into other parts of the program. Um, I think like being able to know dynamically like how things are going and why things aren't working out as well as you want them to is really important. Um, but there were also other issues. So one was that uh, resistance to DDT and other insecticides spread faster than people imagined it would. Um, but there were also just issues with like funding the, um, the program and like making sure that it ran smoothly. So there were like natural disasters and wars in between that, you know, made it, um, that kind of blocked parts of the program. Um, and so on. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, the general kind of thing you'd imagine at that scale. Let's talk about one of those things, which was resistance to the use of DDT. How much of that was, or how much of that came from these new worries about the environmental effects of DDT? I think maybe that's slightly overestimated how much that made an impact. Um, but as essentially, the environmental harms of DDT were known in the 1940s, at least. Um, and it, it just really didn't get very much traction, partly because it didn't seem to affect humans and mammals very much at the time, and also just because it was going to be so useful in the agricultural industry and for public health efforts that people were like, no, let's just let's just keep using it and like get rid of all of these pests. And it would be obviously like a huge economic benefit to having pest control. Um, uh, but eventually, the worries and the concerns grew stronger. And in many countries where malaria was now eliminated, there wasn't that much of a benefit to using it. Mm -hmm. um, and so the concerns grew, like you could see the, the shift in the balance of you know those arguments towards um, restricting its use. Um, and so it was phased out from agricultural use specifically. Um, so people that were using it in like uh, spraying campaigns across fields and things like that would mm. stop in the 1960s and 70s. Um, people continued to use it for public health efforts and for malaria control, but not at the same level as before. Mm. Um, and I think part of that was uh, like popular, you know, people just being a bit more resistant to the use of that, but also. Um, just because it was mostly manufactured at an industrial level. Mm. And then having that shut down just meant it was harder and like more expensive and harder to transport. 
Yeah. How much of that resistance came from, let's say, Global South or from, I guess, the kind of, let's say, the US or countries where like there's more of a environmentalist movement that's maybe like yeah. talking about it more? Yeah. So I think the the kind of phase outs and bounds happen like at a different, like at national levels. So it was mostly right. phased out in like richer countries to begin with. Um, whereas uh, countries that were more affected by malaria continued to use um, insecticides and still do even now. Mm. Can you talk about what the environmental effects were? So you mentioned it didn't affect humans and, and right. mammals, but like what, what did it affect or what was the case for, um, yeah, like lowering its use? It affected sort of birds and um, birds' eggshells would get thinned by DDT building up in the environment mm. because of agricultural use mostly. Um, but also it would affect fish and frogs and toads and all of these other marine and aquatic animals, um, like interfere with their reproduction and various other harms like that. Um, and I think there were also, there were a bunch of reviews that I read where people were talking about its harms on friendly insects and like beneficial insects that we should think about even mm. earlier. How big were the concerns of like more broad like ecosystem collapse? I know that's like one thing that people often point to is that like, well, if you eliminate one uh, species, uh, that's going to have like a lot of knock-on effects down the line. Uh, and even if your concerns aren't purely environmental, mm -hmm. there will be knock-on effects like onto humans or onto uh, other beings too. Yeah, I think that was mainly that was that was a argument that was mainly um, brought forward in Silent Spring, the book, the 1962 book by um, Rachel Carson, the marine biologist, and so she kind of wrote about the whole like the ecological effects on birds, um, fish, cats, just various animals, um, mm. and would like look through different case studies of how it affected different populations at different times. Um, and I think at the time it was quite a controversial book. Like we now see it as this big uh, thing that completely changed um, public perception on the issue. But at the time it was quite controversial among experts. Um, and it led to further research on the topic, which then substantiated some of the harms, but not, not to the degree that was stated in the book, but they were clear um, effects that DDT had that hadn't been appreciated at that level before, I think. Has our understanding of the environmental harms of DDT and things like it significantly changed since the kind of view that was brought forward in Silent Spring? Um, I'm actually not sure. I think um, that the effects on human health are still not very clear. So some of the effects that were suggested, so for example, um, the issue with DDT is that it builds up in our fat tissue. Mm. Um, so in human in humans and other mammals, rather than affecting the rest of the rest of our body, it just builds up in our fat. Um, that also includes like breast milk. And so there were worries that it could be a carcinogen or it could spread to infants and like what were what what are the potential effects of that? Mm -hmm. Um Though many of those effects now seem to be quite minimal, and it's not super clear like how much it affects all of these other like all of the potential things that it could affect. But many of the early worries turn out to not be true, at least for humans. 
So now thinking about like what limits DDT in global South countries today, um, I can imagine a few different stories. So one would be it is no longer clear whether people actually want to use this, whether like from a public health perspective, it is net good. Um, another perspective is maybe somewhat more cynical that there's now just a vocal interest group that like really doesn't want it and blocks that kind of use. And then there's this maybe more uh, economic view, which is that you know a lot of the big markets in the US or in other uh, uses just like no longer exist, and that means that the supply isn't there or it's like a lot more expensive. Um, which ones of these three or like a completely separate fourth explanation resonates most there on like why uh, insecticides haven't been able to make the same progress uh, in like global South countries as it has um, yeah, in the global North like more than 50 years ago? Yeah, um, I, I think it's sort of a different option, but also partly the, the reduced supply. Um, I think it's two main things. One is just that Malaria is much more common in those in a lot of tropical countries mm -hmm. than it was even mm -hmm. at its peak in like Italy or the US. It was just much easier to eliminate in those places um, because of the lower levels, but also that they had managed to coordinate this effort to eliminate it like nationwide before resistance had developed. Right. So now the World Health Organization, for example, suggests that people uh, routinely like switch between different insecticides. So like one year they'll use DDT, the next year they should use a different one um, and kind of cycle through that. Um, that doesn't really seem to happen very well, um, but it is like there is a move away from using just DDT to using other insecticides as well. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess in this story, um, DDT initially seemed very promising and was used regionally to eradicate malaria. And then um, there was a kind of pullback. And I kind of just want to ask, looking back, does that seem like a mistake? Like, would it have been better just to have pushed on and, you know, we'll deal with the environmental effects afterwards, but let's just eradicate malaria first? I think it's like, it's hard to say because it, like I definitely think having more insecticide spraying would have been um, would have had more benefits, but it's often the case in previous examples that like a lot of the disruption or the resurgences of malaria were because funding was cut, or like people just mm. assumed like okay we've it looks like we've gotten rid of malaria, so let's just mm. stop spraying, right, and then right. they didn't realize that there was actually a like low level that could bounce back. Um, so it's kind of a mix of like lots of different reasons. And I think just the popular opposition to it alone is not the only reason that we didn't um, eradicate it, but uh, that's, yeah, that is one reason. Maybe one other framing of this question is um, given some of the, the things you pointed out there of like um, just malaria prevalence being a, a ton higher in sub-Saharan Africa, do you think that a well-coordinated global insecticide program could have eliminated malaria like in that region? Um, that's actually, yeah, that's hard to answer. I think like, I think it is possible to el eliminate it from sub-Saharan Africa. I think it's just something that requires much more than just insecticides. Mm. Um, so like bed nets, for example, um, and other like treatments and vaccines are all just gonna, like everything's just going to be really important. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I definitely think it's possible. I just don't think like that would be enough. Mm. on its own, especially because this resistance develops against it. 
I guess like one question here would have been uh, whether there was like some window of like when these right. insecticides were like first used that like if you just did it swift enough or quickly yeah. enough, you could have like gotten over the hump. I'm aware there's like right. super speculative. Um, but yeah, I can also imagine the counter story of um, the prevalence is just like so high that by yeah. the time that you're spraying that much insecticide, um, resistance develops. Yeah. And in fact, like one of the funny things I learned while or well, not very funny, it's kind of sad, but um, while doing research for this piece was that there wasn't really a plan to eliminate it in sub-Saharan Africa. So even though there was a global eradication program, mm. all of the like plans and strategies were developed for other countries. And for sub-Saharan Africa, they were just kind of pilot or like experimental programs that were set up. Um, and then it would be just be We'll we'll look back and like see how they're going in a few years, and then decide whether to do a national program. But those didn't actually happen. Is that because the countries didn't have like you know the state capacity to execute those programs, or were they like just not even included in the room or it something like that? It's kind of both. With? So it's the state capacity, and there also just hadn't been success until then. Mm. So there hadn't been any any countries in Africa that had eliminated, it, and so they just thought. We need to tr see if it actually is possible here first, mm. um, which is quite strange for like a global eradication program. Yeah, that's quite surprising. Um, should we talk about vaccines? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Maybe we should start with some background on why a malaria vaccine is a little tricky. So malaria is a parasite. Is there something distinctively difficult about making vaccines for parasites compared to viruses, for instance? Yeah, definitely. So. Um, so I think there are, there are like inherent differences in like how easy it is for to make a vaccine against some diseases than others. Um, so malaria is harder for many reasons, and many of those are because it's a parasite. So the first is parasites are kind of complicated. So viruses are very small, bacteria are a bit bigger, and they have these they have only like a small number of proteins on their surface, um, and so when you develop and immune when you when your immune system starts to recognize them, they kind of focus on a few proteins that are very easy for them for your body to see, and for you to develop antibodies against. Um, with malaria, it's quite tricky because it kind of changes shape throughout its life cycle. So you've kind of recognized it at one stage, but mm. by the time you react to it, it's already turned into another stage. Mm. Um, and in and in this case specifically, it has its like first transformation within an hour. So you're basically bitten by a mosquito, it immediate it very quickly gets to your liver and then just kind of hides in there and then mm. it turns into a different shape. And so that means that if you wanted to develop a vaccine for that first stage, it would have to act very quickly. Um, and that's quite difficult. Um, but another reason is just even if even if you did figure out which protein might be relevant to put into a vaccine, um, the parasite has like thousands of um, proteins on its surface, and it's like it's not the only thing that you're um, that would be easy to target for your immune system. Um, and then I th there are also other reasons. So often with vaccine research, you're not just testing it directly on humans first. You want to try out how well these things work in animals or other um, organisms. Um, but finding this model to test things out in other animals is very difficult for mm. a parasite, just because it's like so strongly adapted to each species that it infects. So um, 
it might be specific species, but also it goes through its like those two stages of its life cycle. Um, and those are very different in different species. So even if you try it out, try out a vaccine and it seems to work in rabbits or mice or something, mm -hmm. it could be very different from the disease that you have um, just because it's so highly adapted. Do we have any effective vaccines for human diseases caused by parasites? No, malaria is the first one. Uh, we do have I th at least 10 vaccines for parasites that affect animals, so livestock and pets. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the first one for humans. Does it kill a lot of mammals, that, like non-human mammals in the same oh, way as it does humans? Uh, no, actually. And I think it's um, it's really only rodents that we've, I think it's only rodents that the other mammal that we found that's been infected by malaria, like in a regular way. So in many circumstances, you'd have like a parasite infects another animal, but it doesn't complete its whole life cycle. It just causes okay. some level of harm. Yeah. Whereas for rodents and humans, and then also some bird species, it can do its entire life cycle in them. And if I'm right, like importantly, if it doesn't complete its life cycle, it doesn't spread. Yeah, um, yeah. exactly. Sorry, another tangent question. <laughs> when it comes to like vaccines for diseases caused by parasites, why do we have more than 10 vaccines for pets but not humans? Yeah, um, also a great question. I think I should look into this more. I think uh, it tends to be easier to develop vaccines for animals for kind of a mix of like regulatory and like safety reasons. So you, it's just there's less of a safety consideration when you're like, you can do challenge trials on animals much more easily. Yeah. Um, but also like you can do it in like in a very precise way that you can't really do with human vaccines. Mm. There are like ethical issues, but also just how how to set up the trials in general is harder. Yeah. And where, where's the demand, I guess, for like animal vaccines? Is it mostly livestock and like farmers that yeah. we should be thinking about here? Or is it like people really care about their pets? And, and that's the there story. Are some, I think there are a few parasite vaccines for dogs and cats, but then most of them are for cattle and other yeah. livestock. Cool. Let's talk about history of the malaria vaccine. I guess what originally kickstarted the research? What was the original motivation? Um, so I think you could sort of say that it started with the discovery of the parasite. Mm -hmm. And so this was 1880. Um, and at that point, it was like, not only did we figure out it's a parasite and not a bacteria or something, um, but also this parasite, there were different parasite species that cause malaria. They also go through all of these different transformations. And so it just seemed like a very difficult thing to develop a vaccine for. Mm -hmm. um, and so there were a few efforts from then um, until about the 1930s, um, usually focusing much more on like developing anti-malarial drugs and like insecticides and stuff instead. Um, but there was some work into trying to find other animals that were affected by malaria. And so that included like um, ducks and pheasants and things like that. Um, but actual vaccine research didn't really kick off until a mouse model was found for the disease, which was in the 1960s. And to be clear, this is useful because it's easier to experiment on mice than humans, so right. you really want to find like a model. Mice are mammals, which means they're much closer to humans than birds are, um, but also they're just easier to 
keep in a lab and like um, sort of have lots of generations of them. So there were some early, uh, there was some early research done on monkeys and humans as well for the when people were treated with syphilis, uh, for syphilis with mm -hmm. malaria. Um, but that's obviously not very easy to do. And also when penicillin was discovered, that kind of broke that source of research. And then this early research trying to find a malaria vaccine, was that government funded, like NIH type work? Was it philanthropically funded? Who was doing it? There were different research teams. The main one was um, in the National Institutes for Health and the US Army, um, the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Um, and so one of the main reasons for this was that uh, military personnel in the Vietnam War, so in South Asia, had been encountering um, chloroquine resistant malaria. Mm -hmm. um, and so like drug resistance had been noticed before that, a few years before that, but when it then affected people in the US Army, there was the, then this like call for, we need to develop new drugs that are not, that um, mosquitoes don't have resistance to. Um, and also maybe we should start working on these like long-term research um, mm. efforts. So when the eradication program kind of started to fall apart, there was this uh, recognition that now we'd have to look at long-term control measures. And like now it's probably worthwhile in investing in things that might pay off like decades from now. Mm. Um, and so the US Army set up uh, lots of vaccine research initiatives. Um, including this one that eventually succeeded. How different should I imagine the like size of attention being paid to malaria now compared to this like global effort before? Was it just like everybody switches over from DDT to vaccines, or is there much more of a sense of like, well, it's eliminated in the US now, and sure, it's affecting US troops abroad, but that makes it much less of a priority globally. Yeah, exactly. And so, and I, even after the Vietnam War, there wasn't really that much interest in mm -hmm. developing a vaccine. Um, and so it was kind of like vaccine researchers are mainly based in a few countries even mm. today. Um, and if there wasn't you know, large scale funding for it, it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Was there a like specific point, if at all, when this like becomes much more explicitly a like global health, global south issue as opposed to uh, something that like also affects North America, Europe, um, like rich countries? Right. Um, I think probably you could say some, somewhere around the 1960s or so mm. is when that would have taken place, just because in, in the 1940s and 50s, it was uh, eliminated one by one in a lot of countries mm. um, before and during the global eradication program. So um, various South and Central American countries managed to eliminate it, um, Taiwan, Jamaica, Cyprus. Um, and I think it just sort of slowly fell off people's radar. Yeah. Um, there was this desire to to eliminate um, malaria worldwide because of the economic benefits that would have for trade and like right, agricultural yeah. production in Africa and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually, that like seeing that the eradication program wasn't working very effectively and that it was no longer a personal problem, then mm -hmm. shifted that attention away. So a sporozoide is the first stage of the malaria parasite. So it's when it when you get infected by a mos uh, mosquito bite and then it 
then is in your bloodstream and um, quickly makes its way to the liver. This, the sporozoidy is the first stage. Okay, and there was this idea of x-raying them to create some kind of quasi-vaccine, is that right? right? So, um, the idea was, uh, like I said before, it's like quite difficult to make a malaria parasite vaccine just because it transforms so much and it looks so different from the um, from stage to stage. Um, but essentially, if you could make a vaccine against that first stage, you would just block the infection. You would block mm -hmm, like right, the rest right, of right. the disease and people. Um, and so the idea was that we should try to make a vaccine for this stage. Um, and there were like different ways that people had been thinking of doing that. So it with mice that they had been doing research on, they just kind of injected these sporozoids, sporozoides mm -hmm. into their veins. Um, and that actually seemed to work quite well. So we had like, I think, 30% of vaccinated mice developed malaria versus 67% of unvaccinated mice. Um, and that's obviously quite effective, mm. um, sort of cuts the rates by about half. But the problem was um, how to actually get those sporozoides. So you'd have to breed mosquitoes at a mass scale um, because you need them to complete the whole life cycle right. to get that first stage. Um, but also you need to extract the sporozoides from the from the mosquitoes so to do that you'd have to decapitate the mosquitoes and like remove the sporozoides from their salivary glands and for mice that there was not really that much attention on their safety so they would just inject that whole preparation of like dissected and ground up salivary glands containing the parasite into their into the veins of mice but with humans that could be a, that was considered a much more harmful risk like that could cause embolisms or mm -hmm. you know other reactions in our blood is that because it could contain other harmful yeah. things so just the fact that it has all of these random yeah. proteins or different parts of um, mosquitoes okay and then decapitating mosquitoes, you have like a tiny guillotine or something. What's the machinery here? Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. A tiny guillotine. Um, there, there's this company called Scenaria that's still producing um, vaccines against this first sporozoide stage. And I think until a few years ago, they actually had like some 300 people just for their day job, just decapitating mosquitoes. <laughs> Whoa. Um, and they managed to automate that to some degree by having these decapitation apparatus um, where you would kind of fit in the mosquitoes and then have them decapitated yeah. and the um, salivary glands extracted. Okay, so it's, that was one project, this idea of like x-raying and like deactivating right. this kind of first stage. Yeah, so just because it would have been quite harmful to just inject the sporozoides into people. Um, with all the salivary glands and like all of that waste material, um, people thought like, why don't we just X-ray, um, like radiate the parasites or radiate the mosquito um, until that sporozoidy isn't able to cause disease, so it can still be injected into your body, but your immune system will learn how to react to it, and then the next time you get a malaria infection, it will learn how what that looks like. Um, and so what they did was they. Um, radiated mosquitoes that were infected by the parasite and then let the mosquitoes bite people. Um, so they would transfer this 
X-ray inactivated oh, sporozoidi mm. into people. And did that work? Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah, it seemed to be quite effective. So I think the first few experiments were not effective because there wasn't enough X-ray radiation applied. Yeah. Um, but eventually, I think one of the early studies in, I want to say the 1980s, but it might have been before that, um, it was it was just a small trial with seven people. Um, and what they would do was they'd have these people in a room where they're just constantly getting bitten by mosquitoes that are x-ray um, inactivated. And so they would just try that out on several different occasions. So like on one day and then a month later, three months later, six mm -hmm. months later, and so on, and see how many of those volunteers were protected against um, getting malaria all of those different times. And out of like a study of seven people, they had six people were completely protected against it mm -hmm. in these early trials. And that was like an important proof of concept, yeah. but it was just difficult to scale this up because even then it required like breeding mosquitoes and decapitating right, right, them right. and so on. Um, okay, so sounds like another breakthrough is needed for scalable uh, vaccines or vaccines which can be manufactured at scale. And then something which comes Next is this CSP protein is discovered. What's up with that? Essentially, during this research with mice, people were also looking at whether mice had an immune reaction to the parasite. Um, and so if you had serum from mice that had been um, vaccinated and then put the parasite into that serum, mm -hmm. you could then see this like globule or like this precipitate formed around it that suggested that something within the mice's serum was reacting mm. and like attaching itself to it. Um, and these researchers uh, used these um, like antibody techniques to figure out which specific protein they were reacting against. Um, and one of the main components was the CSP protein. Um, that it's just called the circumsporozoide protein. It's just the one that's on the surface of the parasite at that stage. Um, and so the idea was if we have discovered now a pro like a specific protein that people's, that mice's bodies were reacting against, maybe we could just use that one protein in a vaccine and then we wouldn't need to breed massive numbers of mosquitoes and stuff mm -hmm. um, to have like mass like manufactured um, vaccines instead. And did people figure out how to manufacture CSP? At this point, I think they managed to find out what the protein was. They sequenced the genetic code of, um, of the protein. They also found that it seemed to be quite similar across like different different species of the parasite. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would suggest that if you had protection against one of them, mm. you'd hopefully oh, have right. Because I guess there are against... variants of malaria, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the, this seemed like, this seemed quite promising. Like it seemed like something that you could test for easily and that might protect you against many strains. And it was much easier to produce just one protein. Yeah. Um, so at this point, they, uh, the research team then teamed up with GSK, um, who had this yeast cell technology that allowed them to just produce the protein on its own. Mm -hmm. And when was this? This was 1984, I think, okay. mid-1980s. Yeah. 
Um, and it took a while to figure out exactly how to um, how to use that protein in a way that was that caused enough of an immune response. Mm -hmm. So just having one protein alone is often not enough mm -hmm. because you're in your bloodstream. You have lots of proteins kind of floating about, and you want your body to react to this one thing, like to actually recognize that this is something the immune system needs to respond yeah, to. Yeah. Um, and so often what you need to do is add these other components, um, which are called adjuvants. So just different chemical or like different molecules that will tell the body like, look, there's something here, you should respond to it. Um, and so just trying to figure out what the right adjuvant was and like what the dosing was um, that they should use, that took several years. Okay. It sounds like a, a lot of trial and error. I'm curious like what that actually looks like, I guess, like in the lab. Um, and especially to like what degree, like are you able to do these trial and error cycles uh, with animals or like with humans? Like how, you know, how far along the process to completion can you get before you need to like go back and reiterate? Right. Um, so I think this reiteration process must have taken about so it was the mid 1980s when they discovered uh, when they started working on these protein vaccines and i think it was only 1994 or so when they finally figured out like one um composition that seemed to work well and so it's just there's a lot of iteration mostly in with mice but also with these challenge trials where people are just sitting in a room and like getting bitten by mm. mosquitoes to check whether they're protected against it can you say something about how those challenge trials were were run it's kind of interesting because the history like the ethical history of a lot of research mm. is a bit fraught and like in this case especially um lots of the early research in the 1970s was done on prison volunteers. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't allow that today. Um, but essentially it was people in prisoner, um, people in prisons volunteering to do these studies and then being given a vaccine or a placebo and just in a room with mosquitoes that are infected with malaria mm -hmm. um, to see how many of them are protected against the disease. Mm -hmm. And this was used for the sporozoites and for this newer. Yeah. Um, and so I think in the 1970s, they started to shift away to non-prison volunteers, but it was mainly these challenge trials where people yeah. would just like decide or what, Why were prisoners volunteering for this? Was there some kind of like semi-compensation or... I'm actually not sure. And there was a lot of controversy around it at yeah. the time as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. Um, was that a shift in government regulation then to like stop these these yeah. prisoner trials from happening? Or yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there was also, I mean, I think initially there was this publicity backlash against it. Mm -hmm. And then, so the people who were conducting these um, prison challenge trials then moved away to regular volunteer studies. Um, but then there were more regulations put in place. Okay, so um, there's a CSP protein which is discovered, let's say, sometime in the 80s, and then something like a decade later, after some amount of alchemy, mixing it with adjuvants or whatever, um, the result is more like a vaccine. And this is the RTSS vaccine, is that right? Yeah. Um, so the RTSS vaccine is four components. So each of the letters in the name is a component. Um, so the 
R is this uh, is a part of that um, CSP protein. Mm. The T is a different part of the same CSP protein, um, and then the S is an adjuvant, which is uh, hepatitis B surface antigens. That's not mm. very important, um, but essentially it's these three components, and then there's an extra S. So there's another one of these adjuvants that is like a scaffold. So all yeah. of the other ones are kind of on the surface of that one. And it uh, looks okay. a bit like a virus. Mm -hmm. And the idea is um, that whole uh, that whole structure of these four components looks kind of virus-like and is something that can alert your body to react to the CSP protein. Yeah. Okay, so there, there is a recipe now, it sounds like, for a vaccine which can be made at scale. And you mentioned that um, GSK was partnering with this research and was offering to manufacture the vaccine. So what happened next? At this point, I think this was the mid-1990s, um, and they were doing field trials and more um, research in mice at the time. Uh, they started a big field trial in the Gambia mm -hmm. first. Um, I think the problem with these challenge trials is like you don't really know how much it translates to being infected with malaria in the real world because you're not necessarily going to be infected by just one species of the parasite, but also maybe the mosquitoes in the lab have more chances to bite people or less chances to mm. bite people than people would experience across a whole year or something like that. Um, and maybe there are like temperature differences, maybe there's like all sorts of things that could be different. So they did these field trials in the Gambia and that was between 1997 and 1999. <clears throat> um, and those seem quite successful. So the RTSS vaccine in these first field trials in the Gambia had an efficacy of about 30%. So it reduced the chances of getting malaria by 30%. Um, and that was quite promising. That was much better than any other vaccine that had been tested before. Um, it seemed like it was a bit uncertain how effective it would be, though, because while they did this one trial, they also looked at how effective it was at different time points in the trial. Mm -hmm. So after the first month, it seemed to have an efficacy of about 70%. Mm -hmm. But at the last month of the trial, it was more like 0%. Okay, and wow. so there seemed to be this like massive decline in efficacy over time. And it was like not very clear whether that's just because of this like small numbers in the study. Like it wasn't planned to be a study that would look at these different time points. Or maybe it would just it's just a vaccine that like you would just lose um, protection with. Um, and so there was there was a lot of promise, but there was also yeah. a lot of skepticism about like how useful is this really gonna be? Mm -hmm. um, and by that that time, this was like nineteen ninety-nine or so, um, the US Army is no longer interested in a vaccine mm -hmm. that not only it's not going to help them in war efforts, but also doesn't seem to be that effective in the long term. So the only real market in the U.S., for example, would be people who are traveling to countries that are um, endemic with malaria, and then you might get it as a travel vaccine just before you go or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so there was not that much interest from them, and the researchers had like a lot of struggles finding funding for continuing the trials. Mm -hmm. um, so just doing clinical trials isn't 
quite expensive for any one organization. Um, and it takes a few hundred million dollars at least. Yeah. Um, and so they spent a few years just trying to find who would fund this research. And you mentioned GSK was uh, involved before. Were they funding part of the like studies here? Or like what should I imagine was like the split between you know, public, government, philanthropic research as opposed to private company efforts? I think GSK spent about $500 million on the vaccine wow. in total. Yeah. Um, but they also asked for a significant, I think it was like around 50% or so for it to be funded from other organizations mm -hmm. because they it was not something that they would be able to sell at a profit right. price. Yeah. So usually countries buy vaccines in bulk um, and you'd be selling to um, rich countries first, making a profit from that, so like a small profit from that. And then that would allow you to then um, sell it to poorer countries at a lower cost. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, the, the buyers are not rich countries because we're not affected by malaria. Was this just altruism on the part of GSK? Why were they doing this? Um, I think it was probably partly altruism, partly maybe just... Makes them look some, good? Yeah, just something that they had already been working on and that might have worked as a... They might have developed a better vaccine um, that could have been more effective. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. So... There is this RTSS vaccine. There are these early field trials. They come back, let's say, uncertain but promising. There's also this question mark about where funding is going to come from to keep doing trials and, I guess, improving the vaccine and eventually manufacturing it. Um, this is around the like late 90s at this point? Yeah, so this is 1999 to 2000 okay. or so. Okay, got it. And then, yeah, does anything change on the funding front? Uh, so things start to change um, in the mid-2000s, um, but at this point they managed to get funding from the Malaria Vaccine Initiative at mm. PATH, and that was just set up by the Gates Foundation, I think, at the same time. Um, and so that covered the cost of clinical trials at that point, um, but it was like a constant, like, it doesn't seem as effective as we want it to be. And there was some skepticism and people were also trying other types of vaccines. Um, and so like funding was spread across these different vaccines, but also across other areas. So people were more focused on continuing to work on insecticides and bed nets. Mm. Um, and then throughout the 2000s, funding started to grow um, from various initiatives. So the US president's initiative, I think that was, there are like three different big ones. So the global fund, um, the US president's initiative, and then something else. Um, and the Gates Foundation was also a big um, funder of vaccine research. Okay, got it. So did that mean that clinical trials, field trials could pick back up again and things were looking kind of better in the early 2000s? They started doing um, what's called phase one and two trials of, um, of the vaccine between 2001 and 2008. So essentially a vaccine or any kind of drug tends to go through three stages of clinical mm -hmm. trials. Mm -hmm. The first uh, phase one is when you're essentially just testing for safety and like the kind of basic, does it seem to work? Does it seem to 
cause some kind of immune reaction and so on. And you're not really testing how effective it is. Um, so this would be maybe a few hundred people in a study mm -hmm. or so. Um, and at this point, because it's mainly a disease that affects children, the people in the trial would be infants. Mm -hmm. um, and so what they did, which was quite unlike other uh, vaccine trials, was they did first um, tests in five to nine-year-olds and then one to four-year-olds and then um, infants that are under one. And they did that sequentially. So it was first the older children, then the younger children, and then the infants. Um, and I think that was mainly out of safety con concerns. Mm -hmm. um, but it just meant that like that whole process of going through the whole clinical trial process is just much longer. Yeah. Um, and so doing these trials across eight years from 2001 or so to 2008, um, across different countries in Africa. And who determines, I guess, this like regulatory process and especially like what ultimately gets approved or how it would have to get approved? I'm kind of imagining there's a mix of like US and European uh, companies and also like scientific funding from lots of different places. But ultimately the vaccines might get, you know, produced in say India, but then like deployed in like lots of different sub-Saharan uh, African um like countries, like, is there a global set of regulations? Do people defer to like one country's regulation? Who's who's kind of setting the rules here or who decided, right? Let's um, start with children of this age and, and then go down. Yeah, um, I think a lot of it is sort of in expectation of what the regulation is going to be. Like, what is the regulator going to ask for? Mm. Um, so I guess we'll come back to like this later on when we talk about COVID vaccines. Mm. Um, but you're often trying to anticipate what the regulator is asking for. Mm. Um, and different regulators will ask for different um, kinds of data. So one big approval agency is the FDA. Um, but because this wasn't going to be a US vaccine, there was uh, this view that like, let's try to get it approved at the level of the World Health Organization instead. Um, and the World Health Organization is this kind of, reg is also this um, committee that approves vaccine on an international scale that other countries can then follow. And that's mm -hmm. quite useful for countries that don't have the capacity to have regulatory systems them mm -hmm. themselves. Um, but it can also be like a bit of a burden if like if they actually do want to approve the vaccine beforehand, but have to wait for um, the World Health Organization to approve it first. Um, and then the other thing is that a lot of funding is kind of dependent on whether the World Health Organization approves something. Right. Um, so in a lot of poor countries, it's not the government buying, like purchasing the vaccine for um, people in that country. They're, it's often subsidized or supported by other international agencies. Mm -hmm. And those agencies want some high level regulator to approve them first. Um, and so the World Health Organization is one of the big uh, ones that passes that threshold that they will look for advice for. Okay, and then, so I guess these field trials in the 2000s, they were conducted with a WHO recommendation in mind. But am I right in thinking that the WHO then kind of unexpectedly said that this wasn't good enough data and actually decided not to recommend the vaccine? So there's the early trials that we mentioned from 2001 to 2008. They seem to be very promising. So in, at that point, 
um, the vaccine reduced the chances of uh, infection by about 65%, um, which is which was much better than before mm. and also much better than people thought was possible. And then they moved on to phase three trials. And this is where you actually are interested in how effective is it um, how effective is it in different countries and in different age mm-hmm. groups? Um, and so then there was a much wider range of countries that were involved in these trials. Um, and that was also, I think, took a while to set up just because these trials were done in sub-Saharan Africa. It's quite difficult to do clinical trials um, there, and there aren't that many sites that do them. There are only a handful even now. Um and so that took a few years. And then at, in 2015, uh, when the results were complete, they were all sent to the World Health Organization. Um, at, well, first sent to the European Medicines Agency, the EMA, uh, for their recommendation. And so the World Health Organization depends on them for an, an initial recommendation and then decides whether to approve them or not. And so the EMA said, you know, it seems acceptable. The safety profile looks good. Um, it looks effective. We're going to give it the green light. Um, and suddenly the World Health Organization um, went the other way and said, this doesn't seem like it's enough data. Um, they had pointed out a few things that were missing or inadequate in these studies. So the first was... Um, they said there's not enough data on whether it prevents deaths, not just infections. Mm. Um, and that would be important in deciding whether we should prioritize this for international funding and like for resource allocation and so on. Um, but also there were some speculative analyses on this data after it came in um, that seemed to suggest that there was a higher rate of some side effects in the kids who were vaccinated. So they, it seemed like there was a higher rate of uh, meningitis in the kids that were vaccinated than the ones that weren't. And it also seemed like there was a higher rate of deaths in the girls who were vaccinated, um, but not the boys. And so this was a bit speculative at the time. And the World Health Organization and the other agencies like the EMA all said like it doesn't we don't think this is caused by the vaccine um and they had a number of reasons for believing that so for example the cases of meningitis were only seen in two of the sites that did these trials and they didn't seem to match up with when people got the vaccines and they were different types of meningitis which we think are caused by different um like have different causes and so they didn't actually think the vaccines are causing this, but it was another reason to be a bit hesitant about should we really go ahead with this now? Um, and so they asked for additional pilot studies to be done on how this would work on a larger scale. So all of these trials that have been done so far are a few thousand children in total. Yeah. Um, and now it's like, let's do it at the level of a whole country okay. or a uh, or like large provinces and see whether we see these same side effects developing at that scale. Um, And surprisingly, it took another than four years to get funding to set up these pilot studies. So Um, this is not like running the pilot studies. This is just getting funding for them. Yeah. So this is four years to get funding and staff to set and sites to set up like how they're going to do the testing and vaccinate children in these in these pilot studies. Um, and they finally got started in 2019. 
And then, uh, yeah, it's, and then I think a year and a half into the pilot studies, there was then enough data to look at this like bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Does it cause these side effects in this much larger population? And those results came in. They didn't show any increase in these side effects. Um, and finally, that was enough data, and the World Health Organization approved it mm -hmm. in 2021. So that second part of the process, just to like clarify, is that just to get the WHO's approval, or would that kind of a large-scale pilot study have to be run regardless? So what usually happens with um, vaccines and most drugs is they get through these phase, these uh, three phases of clinical trials. Mm. And then those are still not necessarily like years of data. Yeah. Um, and they're not necessarily like hundreds of thousands of people or whatever. Um, but we usually have the drug or vaccine approved. And then we continue studying it for many years after that to make sure there aren't new side effects that pop right. up and that, are, that might be rare, too rare to see in small trials, but like important at a population level. Um, but in this case, they wanted those pilot studies to be done beforehand. Mm. Um, and so just ask for much more data to be done. Like, how would this work if it was rolled out at a national scale? And then one of the points you mentioned um, at the beginning was that, like, for the first uh, part of trials uh, that were done, that there was just, like, data missing that the WHO wanted but, like, wasn't there. I'm always curious, like, how do you get to that stage that you've like done what sounds like, you know, a multi-year process and then you realize, oh, I should have asked this. Like, yeah. why don't, why isn't there like closer coordination or like what was like the miscommunication there that meant that such a study could have been run and the WHO knows presumably that that study is being run and then like you still get to a point where, where data is missing? Um, I'm, not, I'm not super sure about this, but what I do know is that it was very surprising to all of the people who were involved. Mm -hmm. So... The, like GSK, for example, had already set up vaccine manufacturing like at a large scale so that they could start rolling out the vaccine once it was approved. And then when this decision came in, they just had to stop that and like start trying to find additional funding to do these pilot projects. Yeah. And then last question for me is like, what are the ethics or like the deliberation process by which the WHO makes that kind of a decision? I'm aware that this is presumably hugely thorny, but you've got this like huge global disease burden that you presumably have a responsibility to. You also have this like maybe general sense of you know safety as a uh, precaution, especially also like for instrumental reasons, not wanting to erode trust uh, in vaccines and like what have you. But like, how does that decision get made? And like, ultimately, how would uh, the voices of the beneficiaries of like people in the global south and stuff like feed feed into this as well? Yeah, um, I mean, it is, it's like, I think we now know that it was a safe vaccine. And at the time, there were these questions around these like speculative risks. Um, and there's like this balance, I think, towards more safety than people would have had in the past. Um, but there were also concerns around other vaccines that were approved near the same time. So um, or that were tested around the same time. So, for example, a dengue vaccine um, seemed to have side effects in children. And it turned out that... Um, so dengue is also a mosquito-borne disease. And the vaccine that was developed for that, it turned out, made it worse for children who had never been infected by dengue before, mm -hmm. but protected children who had been infected by it before. And it was this rare side effect that like people hadn't predicted in advance. And then there were some other um, 
vaccines in previous history for children, like the rotavirus vaccine in the 1980s had these similar side effects. And so there was just, just this general uneasiness about having a vaccine for children that maybe had these side effects. Mm. Um, I think obviously the consequences of malaria are so, like the burden of malaria is so large that it's maybe we should move towards having much more kind of going for this vaccine that could be quite effective and then just doing the follow-up studies afterwards. But at the time, I think there was some uneasiness around that. Mm. I don't know if this is answerable, but when the WHO is coming up with its requirements for approval for a new vaccine, do you have some sense of whether those requirements are the result of some kind of explicit cost-benefit thinking or whether it's a different process entirely? I think it's a mix of both. So in in most cases, they will have these like precedents and these expectations around what kind of data is needed. But the regulator can also ask for more data at like quite late into the trials or at the point of when they when the people have submitted data. And I think that's partly because like trials are just done in different ways. Like you're not gonna mm. things are gonna change and you don't necessarily plan things the way they turn out. Um so for example, with the COVID vaccines um, as well, um, there was this delay in their approval, partly because the FDA, for example, wanted more data on different ethnic groups. So they wanted thousands of people to be in, involved in these studies in each ethnic group in the US, for example. Um, and that was something that they suggested to these vaccine um, uh, pharmaceutical companies quite late into the clinical trial process, um, which wasn't expected in the beginning. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. So this RTSS vaccine for malaria was approved two years ago in 2021. Um, I guess it was developed in the 20th century in 1998. So I think that's 23 years between being developed and being approved. That sounds like too long to wait for um, a vaccine of this importance, given the burden of malaria. Why didn't we get a vaccine sooner? Why did we have to wait so long? Yeah, I mean, there's like there's so many different reasons that all play a big <laughs> role. So I think one is it's hard to do clinical trials in Africa. Um, there aren't that many sites that run these trials. It's kind of hard to set them up. Um, I think the other one is the malaria vaccine is itself, or the malaria parasite itself is quite, kind of tricky. Mm. We had this idea that like the vaccines were effective, but their efficacy dropped and we weren't really sure why that was happening and like how to improve that. Um, so there were these questions around how effective it was. There was also this worry around um, a childhood vaccine and how much safety data needed to be collected for that. I think probably the biggest thing uh, in the last 23 years was um, was just a lack of funding. Mm. Um, and it was just this constant struggle that the researchers had to go through to get enough funding for this vaccine. And I guess part of that was because it wasn't clear how effective the vaccine would be. But a large part was that it's not, firstly, it's not a, it's not a, disease that affects um, people in richer countries. But secondly, that it's usually 
countries themselves are investing in healthcare and like mm-hmm. um, putting in the money that pharmaceutical companies can then um, have to compensate for the large costs of doing research and development. Mm-hmm. Um, and people in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, um, spend about 80 times less on healthcare per person than people do in rich countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and that lack of you know, benefit at or reward at the end just means there's much less reason for pharmaceutical companies to invest in this very long and complicated procedure mm. that often, most of the time, fails anyway. So most vaccines don't succeed in clinical trials. Uh, the ones that do have still taken a long time and are so expensive. Looking back uh, and perhaps also trying to account for failed attempts. How much did the like malaria vaccine R&D process cost like over the last like 50 years then? Ooh, um, I tried to find that out and I could only really find good estimates of the last 20 years or so. Mm. Um, and I think I had that somewhere in a footnote. Um, the total spending must have been around a few billion dollars. Mm. Um, like in, single digit in malaria billions. research, yeah, uh, in malaria research and development. And then you know you can perhaps like think, oh, there's like a ten percent chance or something like ex ante that this would like work out. But then you, what I'm like gathering here is like that's still. I mean, it's like substantial, but it like still leaves you in like double digit billions as opposed yeah. to. And looking at the last twenty years of funding, do you know where most of that came from? Did Gates put up most of it? Was it aid budgets from rich countries? Uh, yeah, so it was a it was a mix of many of the programs were set up in the early two thousands. So the Global Fund in two thousand and two, the U.S. President's Malaria Initiative in two thousand and five, and Unitaid in two thousand and six. Um, and then with all of those and the Gates Foundation, there was about five hundred million spent on malaria research per, per year uh, between two thousand, but like in the two thousands. So now we've got this like malaria vaccine, I guess. Like one question is like, well, what is there left to do? Presumably you need to like produce everything and then like actually distribute her. Uh, and I'm curious like how big an update, um, yeah, it should now be that we have this vaccine with a you know decent efficacy. Um, how close are we to like eliminating malaria as a whole? Like is this something to, to expect in our lifetimes now? Uh, I think so. But I think like again with the DDT, like it's not just going to be this one. Mm. Like this is definitely some. This is like a turning point, but it's not a complete game changer. It's not going to be enough on its own. Uh, one reason for that is that the efficacy is still not that high. So yeah. it's still around thirty to forty percent um, with three or four doses. Like when you have repeated doses, um, but also because the supply of uh, the antigen and the adjuvant, um, that the S part of the RTSS vaccine is kind of limited. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to take a while to scale that up. And I think currently GSK has a license on that adjuvant. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be producing all of the adjuvant um, that other companies can then use um, to develop the vaccine and uh, administer it worldwide. And just checking, they have a license on that to help make a profit, or like, what would be the incentive to to? I don't, I don't know. Have a license there. I mean, I can imagine there's like wanting to make a profit from like the malaria vaccines themselves. I can also imagine that there's uh, a profit in like wanting to have that as IP that also gets used right. for like other vaccines. Yeah, and stuff. so I'm this is to, also to used for other vaccines. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and so it's possible that we also have another malaria vaccine in a few years. Um, there's another mm. one called the R21 mm. vaccine, and that uses a different adjuvant, and that might be in much uh, wider supply than this mm. one. Um, but that's still going to be a few years from now. And I think the people that I've talked to have just said, we still just need to work on everything. We still need bed nets. We still need insecticides. Yeah. Um malaria drugs and vaccines now. Yeah, I mean, almost like zooming out and imagining the like lifetime it takes to get from, you know, initial like R&D to like mass deployment or something, you know, leaving out like whether that uh, actually eliminates malaria, like how far are we or something? Like how much should we imagine that like distribution and licensing and scaling and getting somebody to like pay for all of this and stuff? How long might this take? Yeah, I. it's hard to, it's hard to predict, I think, at that scale. I think Definitely not within the next few years, just because of the like bottlenecks in the supply for this vaccine. Um, but it's, it, I think it's conceivable in like decades from now, just that every like putting in lots of effort into everything uh, will eventually work out. And you mentioned new vaccines. So there's, is there more than one kind of in the pipeline right now? There are several, and they're at different stages. So. The leading one is this uh, vaccine called the R21 vaccine. Mm -hmm. And that's quite similar to this RTSS vaccine. It's just a different, um, like different doses and different like compositions of the same ingredients. And then it has a different adjuvant, um, which is called Matrix M. Mm -hmm. And we, we often, we actually don't really know very well how these adjuvants work. We just know that they kind of do for some reason. Um, and so that's the one that has finished phase two trials, I think. Um, and there are a few countries that have already approved it, um, not waiting for the World Health Organization. Um, but it's expected that it'll finish phase three trials a few years from now and then will be approved probably 2027 or so. Do you have a sense of how much easier it is to develop new vaccines once you have one yeah it's it's hard because it's like in this case there's definitely like a proof of concept mm. um that a malaria vaccine can work that this csb protein can be effective as a vaccine um but also like it's kind of just a change in the composition really of mm. the vaccine and so uh there's definitely a lot of learning in that sense but there's also learning in the earlier stages of the research that mm. the research in mice and so on mm. that allowed all of these things to be discovered. So the RTSS vaccine and hopefully new vaccines, um, they lower infection rates. So you're less likely to become infected and therefore you're less likely to die from a malaria infection. Do they also make infections less severe? That's a good question. I think the answer to that in this case is no. Mm. So what happens here with this um, with malaria is that if you even have a single parasite that makes it to the liver um, and that multiplies, you're going right. to get the right. disease. Okay. Um, and so that's also one reason why I think people were a bit skeptical that this vaccine could work very early on just because it needed to be very quickly effective. Like that mm -hmm. parasite gets to the liver within an hour. Uh, you have to basically block all of the parasites from getting there. Um, and yeah, so it, it, these are vaccines that 
reduce the chances of getting an infection and therefore developing the disease because of that, not because they're necessarily reducing severity. Okay, cool. So we're talking about, I guess, reasons why we didn't get a malaria vaccine sooner. And of course, there are lots of reasons. And some of them are more specific and some of them are more general. So we talked a bit about funding. Um, you also mentioned just that you need a certain amount of infrastructure to, to run clinical trials quickly. I, yeah, I was wondering what you actually need to run a, an effective trial. Right. Um, so in this case, what you want to do is you want to be testing for malaria in these children. Um, so you you want to be having these health sensors that are set up that can handle a vaccine that might require cold storage or something like that, um, where you need nurses and doctors to... Um, to inject the vaccine, to then test for symptoms of the disease, to also test whether they have parasites like in their blood, um, to make sure that, or to test how effective the vaccine is. And so you kind of need a big health infrastructure to do that. Um, and in richer countries, there are a lot of these testing sites where all of this stuff is coordinated by an organization or a pharmaceutical company. But in Africa, there are not very many sites mm. where that is done. Um, a lot of them were set up for the malaria vaccine trial specifically and wouldn't have existed before that. Mm. Are they going to continue to exist now looking forward to like other diseases? I think diseases? so, yeah. yeah. So there are a lot more, um, there are more vaccine researchers in Africa now and also more trial sites. Cool. So we, we've talked a lot about malaria, uh, but there are also, believe it or not, other diseases and uh, lots of diseases um, in the global south that are also still waiting to uh, have uh, effective vaccines. I'm curious how uh, generalizable some of these uh, insights are uh, that we've talked about here from malaria to, say, uh, tuberculosis, where I think we're still using the same vaccine, right, from like 100 years ago or so. Right. Tuberculosis is also a really interesting one where... It seems like, okay, so maybe I should give some background on both the disease and the vaccine. Um, so tuberculosis is a respiratory disease uh, caused by a bacteria. Um, we have a vaccine for it that was developed about 100 years ago now, and that was mainly for children. So um, the BCG vaccine protects children against tuberculosis, and it's quite effective among children. It's not very effective for adults, mm. um, so the bacteria can kind of remain latent in your body and just silent for many years or decades. And then eventually, if your immune system is compromised, for example, through AIDS or through any other kind of um, immune condition, it might then spring up again and cause disease. And in a lot of rich countries today, we have antibiotics and like other mm. treatments for tuberculosis, which mean it's not very deadly. Um, but in poorer countries, that's quite difficult. Um, but also there is a lot more uh, antibiotic resistance against the usual TB drugs. And so there's this huge uh, burden of TB every year. It kills over a million people a year, mm. even now. Um, and there's a clear need, I think, for a new vaccine in adults. Um, and it's difficult to make a, v a vaccine for TB for different reasons. So like with malaria, uh, a bacteria is quite complicated. Um, in this case, because it 
it's sort of silent in your body for so many years. Mm. You would need to be running these trials for a long time, or you need to have some idea of some kind of signal within people that tells you that they're going to be protected. Yeah, I might be completely uh, wrong here. Tell, tell me if I am, but like I think TB stays in your lungs, right? And it can stay there for like up to decades or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that's right. And so a TB vaccine also has been thought to be challenging for a long time, but there are some that are quite promising and in have completed phase two trials. Mm -hmm. So there's this one leading vaccine uh, also developed by G GSK. Um, that seems to reduce the chances of disease in adults by about 50%. Mm. And that's much better than people would have thought was possible or that any other candidate has shown. But there are still struggles with funding that vaccine and yeah. getting it through the final stage of clinical trials and um, getting it approved. And I think part of the reason for that is, again, this problem of like you can't really recoup your spending on R&D because it mainly affects people in poor countries who don't mm. spend that much on healthcare. So a lot of the funding would come through philanthropic um, donations and uh, basically goodwill. And like it's very difficult to then, even once you've developed a vaccine, to actually manufacture it at scale when mm. there's no financial market. Yeah. So one disease I'm I'm curious to hear more about, especially given the, the point you raised there, is HIV, where I understand it's like still underfunded, but at least in like absolute terms or something, has received a lot of investment right. and a lot of attention. Like there's been um, you know, a lot of attempts at like making a vaccine there and yet like little to, to show for it. Um I'm curious like what the lesson is there. Like one lesson could just be it's like really hard to make vaccines. Uh -huh. They're like really tricky scientific problems and it can depend a lot on like what um uh, disease you're like actually uh, talking about, um, but yeah, I'm 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 curious for like your reaction to to that. Yeah, definitely. So I think so. Malaria and HIV and TB are inherently much more difficult to develop vaccines for than other diseases. Um, that definitely doesn't mean they're not possible. With HIV, it's quite tricky because the HIV virus is just so. Um, like genetically diverse. Mm. So different people have completely different strains of the virus, but even within one person, they have many different strains. So it evolves very quickly. And so uh, if you developed an immune response against some versions of that virus, you still might not be protected against mm. others. Um, the other reason is it manages to like get into your immune cells very quickly. So you, the infection is very soon after um, you're exposed to it. So within an hour, I think, as well. Um, and then I think there are a few other reasons. So even developing antivirals against HIV was quite difficult. Yeah. And a lot of the early drugs that were produced against it, HIV developed like resistance or evolved some way to get around them. Um, and so we now use these combination therapies where we're using lots of different drugs at the same time so that it's much harder for the virus to evolve resistance against all of them. Mm. Um, and in this case, it, that's also a problem. So I think there, there are some hopes that we could have a vaccine. And one reason for that is some people, like a small number of people seem to develop antibodies that can uh, that can basically dissolve many different strains of mm. HIV. But researchers haven't really figured out how to produce that antibody in the lab. Mm. Um, 
or what that's what that could look like in a vaccine. Um, so there's there's that, and then also there isn't really a proof of principle that we could completely clear the virus or that we could be completely protected. Yeah. yeah. Um, so with a lot of other diseases like COVID, for example, your body eventually, most people manage to clear the virus completely after a few weeks or months. And that provides the kind of basis for having a vaccine because your vaccine is really just tr like prompting your immune system to clear the virus. Mm -hmm. So can your body do that inherently? Um, in this case, it seems very difficult. Yeah. Um, Still, there's like there's potential. So, there are a few people who have this genetic mutation um, in this important protein called CCR5, which is which is used by the HIV virus to like attach to cells and get in. And some people just don't have that protein at all, and so they're completely protected from HIV. And things like that, and this, and some of these people who have these broad antibodies suggest that it's p possible, but it's still difficult. And I think. There is still research going into it, but a lot of people have kind of moved on to other mm. areas. So in your piece on malaria vaccines, you have this really great timeline of um, vaccine discoveries over time. And the very first one was a vaccine for smallpox in the 1790s. And then there's some delay, right? And then it's like a bunch of others. Yeah. And it just seems really notable how we were able to come up with some vaccines in the literal 18th century yeah and then for other diseases we've like hiv for instance spent hundreds of millions to billions of dollars on trying to find an effective vaccine right we haven't done that yet and curious what accounts for that difference i think at least part of it or maybe the order of which vaccines we managed to develop is partly just how inherently difficult it is so with mm. smallpox it's kind of a lot easier to develop a vaccine against because in this case, the vaccine came from cowpox, um, which also mm. protects against smallpox. So there's a bunch of different pox viruses mm. that include cowpox, horsepox, and smallpox, and, and monkeypox um, that all give you some protection against the others. Um, and so one of the reasons was that it was just easier it wasn't a very specific um, virus that looked very different or like was highly adapted or anything. Um, and one of the precedents for that was also that people had been practicing this like informal variolation for centuries before that. So they had right, people right, had yeah. noticed that if you kind of uh, weakened the smallpox or this per basically weakened the infection in other people and then gave that to someone else, they could be protected from another infection. Mm. Um, and people had been doing that for a long time. And this was like a kind of end point of that. So where Edward Jenner had discovered that milkmaids were protected against smallpox because they had been, or probably because they had been um, exposed to cowpox before. Right. And the symptoms are quite similar. So even if he couldn't tell really what the virus was and had no idea about germs or germ theory, it seemed like there was a correlation. You could easily tell that these symptoms look kind of similar mm. um, between these two groups. And it was easier to then figure out that a vaccine was possible.
So if we developed a lot of the early vaccines in large part because they were kind of easier or it was like lower hanging fruit, um, and at least for the, the, the big three disease burdens uh, today, so malaria, TB, uh, and HIV, uh, we can tell like some pretty specific stories of like why they're tricky. They're like right. parasites. They like live inside the human host for like incredibly long periods of time or they have uh, lots of different um, strains. Um, I'm curious like, how much scope there is to make progress on public health vaccines like across the board. So when we're thinking, for example, uh, you know, with with COVID, that there was this like breakthrough in like mRNA technology, which, as I understood, it wasn't just a breakthrough for like COVID, but was a breakthrough for like vaccines more broadly. Um, how useful are like more basic or more kind of like foundational research um, of that for these like three diseases in in particular? Yeah, great question. So I think there there's a lot of like transfer and learning. So for example, there was so much uh, research into HIV in the 1980s that led to the development of like antivirals that also worked against other diseases. So a lot of HIV antivirals are now used for other diseases. I think one or two of them are also used for COVID. Um, there's transfer in terms of the actual outputs there, but also in terms of like the inputs. So for example, microscopy techniques or um, developing yeast or like producing these proteins and yeast cells in a lab or something like that. And all of these have much broader consequences than people realize, I think, mm. or even genome sequencing in the 2000s um, just mean that it's much easier to tell that like these are different virus strains and like it's going to, like this is the vaccine that might be effective against this and so on. Um, so there's definitely a lot of um, transfer and knowledge and there are a lot of like problems that have been kind of cracked in the last decade or so that were thought to be very difficult before that. Mm. Um, another example is the RSV vaccine. So this is respiratory syncytial virus. It's a common respiratory infection that mainly kills um, children and the elderly. And it was considered quite difficult to make a vaccine for that uh, for decades. And I think there had been early trials in the 1970s that seemed to go wrong and they had side effects and so on. So, and so it didn't get approved at that point. Um, but in the last 10 years, uh, because of new microscopy techniques, researchers could figure out that the virus changed shape before and after it entered our cells. Mm -hmm. And so by designing a vaccine for the before confirmation of the virus, uh, we were then able to like develop this vaccine that the immune system could recognize soon, right. yeah. uh, very early on and block the um, disease from developing. So if I'm a philanthropist and I care about saving lives, saving as many possible in expectation, and I have, let's say, some tens of millions of dollars to spend somewhere. Um, I have a bunch of options which I know will save lives. So for instance, I could spend money on bed nets to prevent um, malaria infections. But I could also consider funding vaccine development, maybe for next generation malaria vaccines or for other um, neglected tropical diseases, or for DB or HIV. Um, is there anything we can say about the cost effectiveness of funding vaccine development? Yeah, what can we say about that? Yeah, I think it's it's quite hard because it's like, 
it's not just the obviously some diseases are are just inherently more difficult to vaccinate against because the viruses or whatever is just more complicated and able to evade the immune system but then there are also other parts of the process that i think could be sped up or improved in some way so maybe funding the development of clinical trial sites in Africa mm. or something. And that might help across the board with many other vaccines. Or maybe it might be um, developing new animal models or developing new microscopy techniques or things like that that could have broader effects. Um, I think it's like it's difficult because if you look at a single vaccine in development, the average I think it's like 94% or so of vaccines that have been mm. in development have failed. Um, that obviously varies a lot between diseases, but also over time and like different contexts and so on. So for example, the COVID vaccines, most of them were successful. Mm. Um, whereas with malaria, it's only really one uh, so far that's been effective. Um, and so it's like, it's not that clear upfront which investments are going to be worthwhile or more cost effective and i think as a philanthropist you probably don't know the specifics of what researchers are working on and how effective they expect something to be and so on mm -hmm. um one of the ideas we have in this piece is for an advanced market commitment which i think is probably a very good uh, idea for or something that a philanthropist might want to invest in. So this is the idea that you set up this financial market that companies can then draw from if they produce a successful vaccine. So uh -huh. um, for the um, pneumococcal vaccine, so this is uh, another respiratory disease. Um, we had vaccines against some strains, but not the ones that affected poor countries. This was in the early 2000s. Um, and so there was definitely like a proof of concept that like we could make a vaccine against these litter strains if we if mm. we put in the effort and if we had funding for them. But there was no financial market for them really to for pharmaceutical companies to invest. And so I think seven countries and the Gates Foundation pitched in to this big advanced market commitment of a uh, few billion dollars. And that was kind of up for grabs if any company developed an effective vaccine that passed all the requirements and so on. They could then um, be rewarded with this money and that would go towards manufacturing the vaccine at certain doses and at a certain price. Mm. And so the countries could then purchase the vaccine at like cost price or so or just slightly above um, with this actual financial market that had been created for this problem. Okay, cool. So if I have lots of money, one thing I could do instead, right, is I could just find research teams and fund them, uh -huh. or I could fund trials eventually. Um, I think you described that as push funding in your piece. Yeah. And this idea of an AMC is different, right? In some sense, it's more like pull funding or just guaranteeing money once some output is reached. Why should I think that that might be more effective than, you know, just giving money to people straight away? Yeah, um, I guess there are a few reasons. And it, essentially, you do actually, someone does need to fund 
Right. Someone definitely <laughs> do the push funding at some point. You have to get the vaccines to that stage that they get approved or to do that early research. Um, the benefit of pull funding, though, is that you don't really have to you don't really need to know about who's going to win. Mm. You don't know which researchers are actually going to be successful or you don't need to know about the specifics in the same way. Um, so even if you don't have a, a huge understanding of which which ideas are most promising, you can still reward the final product for being developed. The mm. way this is structured, would it be like a prize or would it be more like um, just guaranteeing like demand so just buying by the unit it seems to vary so i think they're they can be developed in different ways so with the pneumococcal um disease amcs that has now been um like used for three different pharmaceutical companies so there are now three vaccines for that um that different companies produced i think gsk pfizer and uh the serum institute of india um and so here it would be like a big pool of funding that you would be able to get rewarded from depending on how much, how many doses you're producing and at what cost, uh, at what price you're producing them for. Um, but in this case, in the case of malaria, for example, it could be some kind of delay of like, um, maybe you would give the AMC to the f any vaccines that were produced within a certain time frame um, so that they're not just kind of copying each other and mm. like it undermining the incentives for the first person to develop their vaccine. To, to make sure I understand this, so these AMCs, they would largely be aimed at like pharmaceutical companies where, uh, you know, you still need to, like these teams would still need to get funding in like the immediate term in order to mm -hmm. be able to do the research right. and therefore have some entity that like gives them the money straight up but then have an incentive that like it's almost like a loan or something um, that you can like pay them back if you win the prize. And that seems to like work in this like business context. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem, and I might be like wrong here, get at like what I imagine more like, you know, basic research or like public research being where like, I can't imagine like going to the NIH and being like, hey, give me a loan and then I'll win this prize and then uh -huh. I'll like pay you back. I know that's like somewhat stylized, but I like want to make sure that um, I'm understanding whether this is like solely aimed at these companies. Um, and some kind of like profit incentive there as opposed to, to public research. Yeah, and I mean, I guess they are. there is a profit incentive because they're being rewarded based on how much they manufacture. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in a sense, that's like, that's kind of solving another problem that like once you develop a vaccine, that's not really the end. You actually need right. to scale it up. You need to like give it out to millions of people. Um, but so I think because there's this end goal or reward at the end, it means that researchers who then have a better understanding of what ideas are promising can then look for funding and say, like, this is the idea that's going to get us to the end. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you still need to convince people with the early research, but now there's like a target and there's you, it's much more about expert knowledge and like knowing mm. what should be funded. And then lastly, like one thing briefly. Um... I'm curious about because you mentioned uh, like tying this like units of vaccines. I've heard this mostly around the like pandemic context, uh, but I'm curious how it generalizes to uh, global health burdens. Is that if you have AMCs that like reward the like number uh, of vaccines that like ultimately get distributed, that you're like not fully 
compensating what you want, where you could imagine this like toy example where if I like uh, vaccine people early enough to like prevent a disease from spreading, then I'm actually using fewer doses than if I let this like spread and infect the whole world, where then I need to infect a bunch more people. Um, I'm curious if that, yeah, is like that's all uh, relevant. I guess that's also in a sense part of the design of AMCs is that it's not just the open-ended, like you don't just get funded by the AMC forever. Mm. Um, but for a, for like a certain number of years, the amount, like, so after you have your vaccine approved and you're eligible for the funding, you then would get funding from the AMC for a few years or maybe 10 years or something. Mm. And then after that, the AMC amount would decline. Um, right. So there would be a tail amount of funding after that. But essentially, the idea is just to produce a very large number to begin with. Yeah. Um, that would hopefully set up manufacturing capacity for the long term. Okay, we're going to move on from malaria very soon. But I wanted to quickly ask about gene drives. So my naive understanding is that gene drives could literally just extinct the mosquitoes which carry malaria without many side effects. And that always sounds too good to be true. So what's up with gene drives? Yeah, um, so gene drives are really interesting. And yes, the idea there is you have these, um, essentially you genetically engineer the mosquitoes so that they have, um, that they produce this enzyme that can destroy other parts of your DNA or replace other parts of your DNA. And so usually you have, um, let's say, a male and a female have fertilization, and then you have one copy or of each of the parents gets inherited by the offspring. So let's say you genetically engineered one male mosquito, mm. and it bred with another female mosquito. Usually that would mean only one of the genetically engineered um, copies makes it to the next generation. But in this case, what happens is that specific thing that's engineered actually cuts the DNA in the other um, in the other chromosome, and so it's able to continue on, and it's like it can be passed on to many generations after that. Um, and so, what researchers have done is they've kind of tied this in. So you have this enzyme that's genetically engineered that cuts the other DNA but also insert something else into the mosquito's DNA. Um, and that other thing might make it infertile or something like that, or it maybe prevents it from getting infected by malaria or uh, whatever other change it might be. I think one of the changes early ones- Changes the sex ratio as well, right? With mosquitoes, I think right. preferred, yeah. Um, I think one of the early like proof of concepts there was to make mosquitoes' eyes yellow or something like that. That was just to make, it was just a visible thing that you could test for easily. Um, but then it's it's a little more controversial because you could also just insert other genetic changes or you could attach, you could do a gene drive for something else. Maybe it would make the mosquitoes more resistant to DDT or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's generally just this controversy around the technology. Um, I'm not sure how that plays out in different parts of the world, but I know it's not like it's not authorized in the in the EU, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so doing a gene drive in the EU is not really allowed, um, and there are questions about like, do we want to do this when it has these risks or not? Um, 
which I think are still ongoing. Mm. I think Australia, interestingly, is like, I think, pretty interested in okay. gene growth because they have so many invasive species that it's like right. more an option that they're considering. Um, but I think, yeah, like an important thing to like really emphasize here is uh, having regulatory capacity seems really important because this is like an yeah. untested technology. And if we look, you know, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, we've already talked with vaccines, which is a much more familiar technology that often this regulatory capacity doesn't exist to engage stakeholders and, right. and speak to people about it. Yeah. And then there's also other sort of kind of similar to gene drives, there are other um, ideas. So with dengue um, and other mosquito-borne diseases, there's this bacteria called Waldbachia that you can infect mosquitoes with and it will prevent them from getting infected with other diseases. Mm. Um, it's basically just competing for resources within the mosquito. And so there have been these drives in Singapore and I think other countries as well where they've just infected lots of mosquitoes with this bacteria and like mm. massively reduced the rates of dengue and um and how do you other... do that do you put the bacteria in like breeding sites for mosquitoes or... I, I i should look into that but yeah it seems to have been successful um in the places that it's been tried so far very cool okay so i noticed we haven't talked much about covid vaccines but one thing that's really notable about them was that we got multiple effective vaccines for covid which was this, you know, novel disease in basically less than a year. Um, but we've also just been talking about this vaccine for a well-known disease, which took more than 20 years just to get approved, um, which raises this question of what accounts for the difference there. One story you might tell is just that the world went into a bit more of an emergency mode during COVID. And so the safety bar was lowered a bit for approval. Is that the only thing that's going on that explains why we got COVID vaccines so quickly or was there something else? I think there are a bunch of different um, related reasons. So as you mentioned, it like just being a global pandemic was made it an emergency situation. But I think maybe we should go back to like the earlier research on coronavirus vaccines. So there had already been coronavirus vaccines for animal disease, for coronaviruses that infected animals. Um, so for cats and cattle and livestock and stuff like that. Um, and they just hadn't been used for humans yet. So during the SARS ep epidemic in 2003, there were some efforts to develop vaccines against that. Um, but it was eliminated before the vaccines were even needed um, within a year. Um, and so that vaccine research turned into this basic research instead of um, trying to get an actual vaccine out there. Um, so there had been a lot of early research on these like basic parts of the disease. Uh, I think another part of it is that it's intrinsically easier to develop a vaccine for. So uh, like the opposite of HIV, where most people in this case are able to clear COVID from their bodies, suggests that there's a good chance that a vaccine would work. You just need to prime people in some way to recognize the virus. Um, in this case, there was also some other knowledge um, that had been gained. So the RSV vaccine that I mentioned, where microscopy techniques allowed us to see that the virus looked different before it entered the cells. The same, the exact same technology and the same researchers were involved in COVID 
uh, coronavirus vaccine research um, before the pandemic and had noticed the same like this protein, the spike protein changes shape before it enters our cells. And so there were efforts to develop a vaccine very early on that used this earlier um, shape of the protein in the vaccines. But I think the other striking thing is that just so many different types of vaccines have worked against mm -hmm. COVID, as you mentioned. So we have mRNA vaccines against it. Um, the AstraZeneca vaccine is an adenovirus vaccine. There are others that are very traditional vaccines where it's just like killing the virus, um, deactivating it and using that. Um, so it's inherently easier, but also there are other parts of the trial process that were much easier. So one of the difficult things about doing vaccine research is it often takes years to figure out or to find enough people who are infected by the mm -hmm. disease mm -hmm. to be able to test the difference between a vaccine and a placebo. In this case, so many people were getting infected by COVID. It was quite easy to firstly recruit people into these trials. Like so many people were interested in do in being participants, but also it was much easier to see them develop COVID or not, depending on whether they got the vaccine. Um, the third thing was that the trials uh, worked in a different way than usual. So when we talked about the malaria vaccine research, it was like phase one and then phase two and then phase three. In this case, they were doing multiple trials at the same time. So phase one and two trials happened at the same right. time. Mm -hmm. And then there were phase three trials. Um, and that was uh, like emergency situation or like trial procedure that had actually been set up during the AIDS epidemic, but was now useful because this was a pandemic. Um, it was kind of thought to be eligible for that. Um, and then I think there was also just much more funding and interest for this global problem. Um, it's actually interesting to think about like whether the safety standards were different or from other vaccines, I, I would actually say that the standards were, or like the amount of safety data we have on the COVID vaccines is mm. quite similar to other vaccines or maybe even more before it was approved. Um, so part of this was that people were interested in making sure it met those standards, um, but there were like regulatory requests for there to be trials on many different ethnic groups, but also mm. in many different age groups. And that made sure that there were no serious side effects um, in trials, but also that the efficacy didn't seem to vary. So these vaccines um, during the first year of COVID had an efficacy of like 95%. And that didn't seem to vary between age groups. It didn't seem to vary between ethnic groups. Um, that's quite different from many other vaccines. So it was just very strongly effective and also quite stable across different populations. Um, yeah, so I think I think that's it's it's hard to say like in retrospect, maybe it seems like it was rushed, but there were a lot of people during the pandemic who didn't think we would get a vaccine within a year. Um, they even thought like when a vaccine is approved, it's going to be like it's going to have an efficacy of around 50 percent. Like no one actually really thought like we're going to get uh, so many effective vaccines within a few years that are that effective, um, apart from maybe the researchers involved. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of those factors sound specific to 
COVID and the world's reaction to COVID. Right. Are there any lessons we can take from the COVID years, which we can then apply to other kinds of vaccines? So I think, for example, this idea of doing different phases of the trials at the same time mm. um, is something that could be applied much more widely. Um, another example is testing out different vaccines within the same trial or testing out different drugs within the same trial. So one example is this recovery trial that was set up in the UK. Um, and that was set up through the national healthcare system. So people were recruited as they uh, caught COVID and were sent to a hospital or something like that and could choose to just participate in these studies. And then they were given one off maybe four or five different drugs that were in mm. testing or a placebo. And so you could test five different drugs within the same trial instead of doing five different trials. Okay. And you have this economy of scale, presumably, because you've got all the right. infrastructure set up. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so you have this piece um, about what we learned from COVID about, I guess, speeding up medical science in general. Another lesson that you take from COVID was the just usefulness of getting big institutions to just collect basic data and share it around in a kind of routine way. What I said then was a bit vague, so maybe you could explain why that's important. Sure. Yeah, I think one of the big changes during COVID was just how much data there had been collected for the disease. But like at the level of the, um, the cases that we like, we found out the number of cases per country and the number of deaths per country. Um, the number of people who were hospitalized for the disease. I think that actually took a while to set up um, the infrastructure for different countries were doing it in different ways. Um, some countries were just sharing their data in like PDFs or whatever. Mm -hmm. Other countries had like big dashboards um, where you could explore all the data yourself. Um, I think one example of where it was incredibly helpful was with new variants of COVID. So um, there were a few countries that were doing regular genome sequencing of the virus. So just testing the actual sequence of the COVID virus. And I think it wasn't really appreciated how much it could evolve over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once that was detected by some countries, then you, we would know that like, okay, that seems like it's going to evade our immune response and maybe we'll need different vaccines for it in the future. Um, and it just meant like the response to it has to also evolve along with this mm -hmm. the virus. Yeah, maybe a question here is what concretely could these health agencies or institutions do better? So for instance, would it be good to make more fancy our and data style public facing dashboards or were you imagining something else? Um, I, I think like obviously dashboards are quite useful for people within a country. So mm -hmm. for example, with our world and data, we have global data and like estimates. Um, and so you can see the, the amount of the number of cases per country or something or mm -hmm. per continent, but you can't really see it at a smaller scale than that. And that's something that a dashboard within a country would be useful for, like looking at the different regions and things like that. Um, but ultimately, it's like quite difficult to develop a dashboard. It's very time consuming. Um, it's probably not that useful to do when there are other organizations that can do that across different areas. Um, 
one of the at least like in the time that it takes to develop the dashboard it would just be useful to just mm. share a spreadsheet or a csv file or something um that contains all the numbers just in one place mm. um it's just, it's just like a very basic thing but it's something that i think people didn't realize they needed to share but also just didn't know didn't like have the precedent for sharing mm -hmm. in the past is there a role here for international bodies i was thinking maybe they could like suggest standards for data or maybe they could host some kind of central databases or something yeah yeah like definitely so currently for um the monkeypox epidemic for example um the world health organization now does this global data collection on mm. that mm. um and so i think what's difficult there is that they take some time to develop a standardized like format that they ask all countries to report their data with and they also have to translate in like maybe adjust it according to each country's mm. requirements or expectations um but it's it's something that would just be useful to have in like a standard format but i think maybe what would be more useful is to have it as a sort of routine measures that countries could just start using if there was a new problem. So in the right, same way right, that right. we already collect yeah. data on whatever hospital admissions for something else, if that was just a routine part of healthcare, it would be much more effective. Okay, got it. Just so like if a novel disease comes along, for right. instance, the procedures are already known to just yeah. begin reporting straight away. And for that data to like percolate up without getting stuck in a PDF and never being used. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, with um, with death certificates, for example, mm. they have this coding system, and there's this, well, kind of like in the periodic table, how there were these unknown elements mm. that were mm. there was like space for them in the table. In the same way, this coding system has space for potential new diseases or causes of death. Um, that might arise in the future. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that could just, just easily be switched on for COVID and then people can yeah. report COVID deaths. That's very cool. Which brings us very conveniently, um, I guess, to a bunch of questions that we wanted to ask about the topic of missing data in global health. I didn't realize how much of an issue this was until I saw you talk about it. And you just gave the example then of causes of death being an example of as a kind of data, it would be very useful and decision relevant to know, but is often missing and surprisingly so. Wondering if you could maybe give some other examples just to start off with. Yeah, sure. So I I think the um, the the biggest or like clearest example of this is this idea of snake bites and like how many deaths they cause worldwide. I think that's a it's a useful illustration of the problem. So mm. snake bites are something that. Um, kill tens of thousands of people worldwide each year. Um, but it wasn't really clear how much of a burden they were until in the last 10 years or so. Mm. Um, and there are different reasons for that. The main one is that there isn't good death registration in a lot of the world. Mm -hmm. So in, uh, in the UK and other rich countries, um, you have like a civil register where births and deaths are registered uh, routinely. So someone is born or dies and you have a certificate that's um, submitted for them with 
So with their cause of death on the certificate, um, the cause of death is listed by the doctor or the coroner, whoever looks after them or investigated their death um, and knows their cause. And then that gets put into the hospital system and then gets sent, gets sent to the national level um, and then is just collected and routinely shared with the World Health Organization. Um, in a lot of poor countries, that procedure doesn't really happen. Um, so for a lot of deaths, their deaths aren't registered at all. So we don't know year by year how many people have died. Mm -hmm. um, and even among the people whose deaths are registered, many of them don't have a cause of death on their certificate. Um, so there are like different reasons for that. Uh, one of the big reasons is that there's just not enough doctors and nurses to uh, who know about these procedures or who know how to list the cause of death on the certificate. Or maybe the person didn't have medical records, so they don't know what to list on the death certificate because they don't know what diseases they had in the past that it ultimately led to their death. I was going to say, I guess often it's not trivial to work out the cause of death. You need to maybe work backwards from the proximal cause right. to something which caused that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm curious, maybe particularly with the example of snake bites or something, I have no idea how this disease works, but it feels like at least that out of all the diseases, <laughs> right. like, it's snake probably the easiest yeah. to, to diagnose. Yeah, exactly. So in that situation, you'd think it's quite easy to know whether someone was killed by a snake bite. But there the problem is that people who are most affected by snake bites tend to live in rural areas of the country where the hospitals are far away. Um, and so they're not seen by a doctor or nurse in time and they don't get a death certificate. They don't have that registered. And so it just doesn't get counted in the national system. Um, and it's, I feel like it's quite tragic because it's, they're far away from hospitals, which means they can't get um, anti-venoms in time mm -hmm. and also their deaths aren't counted so we don't actually people yeah, don't yeah, actually yeah. know that that's even happening yeah. at that scale yeah it feels like there's some kind of just basic right to like at least have your cause of death be known right <laughs> so people can maybe act on it um yeah maybe we could put some numbers on these different factors that you mentioned which mean that the cause of death is not recorded so one is that the death is unregistered at all. Another one is that the death is registered, but the cause of death is either incorrect mm -hmm. or not registered. I was wondering which of those factors seems like the biggest. Yeah, so um, I think that that seems to vary worldwide. Um, the proportion of deaths that are registered with a cause is about uh, 30 to 40 percent. Um, in rich countries, it's over 95% usually. Mm -hmm. um, the countries where that data is missing is, are mostly South Asia and Africa. Okay. But to be clear, most deaths worldwide are not registered with a correct cause. Yeah. Or with a cause at all. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then I guess maybe there are also reasons why a cause of death is recorded but is not correct, if you could mm -hmm. speak to that. So in the situation where what happens with a de like each death certificate is filled in by an individual doctor or nurse or a coroner. Um, and that depends on how much they know about the patient and the the underlying reason that um, the thing that triggered their 
the sequence of events that led to their death is how it's described. Um, so their ultimate cause of death could be something that started 20 years ago or maybe was when they were born. Maybe they had a birth defect that eventually led to their death. Um, if people don't have medical records across their lifetime that doctors can draw from, they often won't know what the cause of death is. And so they might just do, they might just list down the immediate things that preceded their death. So the person was sweating a lot or they had chest pain or they had some kind of accident that we don't really know what happened. And so it might be those things that are listed on the death certificate instead. Okay. Um, and so you have these imprecise or ill-defined causes of death on a lot of people's death certificates. And in the past, that used to be quite common even in rich countries. Um, so in the 1920s or so, most people who died above the age of 90 or so had an imprecise cause of death and you just... Mm -hmm have like old age or something <laughs> on yeah. their death certificate. Now we understand much better what people are dying from because of better medical records and testing and so on. So if death certificates are uh, a very like imperfect source of information here, what are like some alternatives that might particularly work? Uh, yeah, as you mentioned in, in South Asia and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. The main alternative that's used there is called a verbal autopsy. Um, and that's kind of exactly what it sounds like. You're basically interviewing people who know the person who died and mm -hmm. you're asking them about symptoms or signs or other conditions that they had before their death and trying to figure out what the cause of death was based on that. Um, so that's also a little tricky because people might not remember mm -hmm. the relevant symptoms or they might not remember or they might not have been there at the time when the person died. Um, Maybe they didn't know which medical conditions the person had because they personally didn't know or the person wasn't tested for them. Um, and so the quality of that varies. Um, but with snake bites, for example, like you said, it's kind of obvious when mm. someone has been bitten by a snake um, and it's very memorable. It happens very soon before the person died. It's like quite easy to attribute to their death. Mm. Um, and so this... The reason that we only found out that snake bites were an important cause of death was because of this one very large verbal autopsy study that was done in India called the Million Death Study. Um, and what they did there was they interviewed two and a half million households every six months for a period of 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, and that had a budget of, I think, two million US dollars per year. I wrote down two million in the notes. I kind of couldn't believe it was that low for the total budget. Mm -hmm. Maybe it just is. One of the reasons for that is that uh, India has a lot of household surveys already. Okay, and right. so that was just done through the regular, um, like the way that they have the census and the other household surveys in the country. Um, but also the actual procedure is quite short. So it's about two pages that are asked to different household members where you're just asking like, what kind of symptoms did the, this person die? When did they die? Um, like any other conditions that you think are relevant to this um, that you can remember. And then based on that information that's collected from people, 
um, doctors look through the answers and then decide on like what they think is the probable cause of death. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the case of snake bites, there's a lot of agreement between different doctors where um, I think 95% or so of them agree um, when one of them thinks it's a snake bite death, the other one also mm-hmm. agrees. So you say snake bites were uh, previously underestimated in the survey, uh, you know, corrected that kind of figure. Can you give a sense of like magnitude here? Like what was the previous estimate and, and what do we think now? The previous estimate was that it was about 50,000 deaths from snake bites worldwide per year. And that was sort of a guesstimate because there were only uh, good, there was only good data from some countries. Um, and then this study found that it was 50,000 deaths in just India alone. Mm-hmm. And so that massively raised um, the estimates upwards for the global um, for the global burden. It's still not really clear how much it affects other countries in Africa. There have been some other verbal autopsy studies done in different African um, regions. Uh, but overall now, the thought is that the estimate is about 100,000 deaths a year worldwide. So um, outside of snake uh, bites, were there any other uh, interesting or exciting results from this study particularly? Uh, Another surprising one was the burden of tuberculosis. Um, Mm. I think that was also underestimated kind of for similar reasons. So it was a bigger burden for people who were living far away from hospitals Mm. in poor rural areas. Um, In that case, it's like a lack of healthcare and antibiotics, but also higher prevalence of smoking and other mm. having other risk factors like HIV or uh, other conditions that could make TB worse. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I guess you might hope that what you could do is look to areas with good reporting of the causes of death and extrapolate. Um, it sounds like the issue is that you can't because there are systematic differences. Maybe the areas with especially low standards of reporting just have different death rates from different causes. And that's why snake bites and TB incidents, I guess also malaria in India, these things were underrated um, because the areas with good reporting just didn't have as many cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's like hard to know how much, like how to extra- extrapolate it. So for example, in Australia, two people die from snake bites per year mm. um, across the whole country. And like knowing that you should be extrapolating that, um, like even if you did extrapolate that to the Indian population, I think it's like 30 times higher um, at a like per capita basis. Like knowing that it's would not be obvious. Mm. Um, because you're missing out on these like cases that aren't being seen because people aren't reaching hospitals. Right. So you don't yeah. know how much you're underestimating it and how to extrapolate it. Mm-hmm. So um, in the case of missing data about the causes of death, it's obviously just very sad that so many deaths are either not being reported at all or being reported without a cause. But why does this matter in terms of making good decisions? Yeah. Um, so in, in this case, for example, Knowing that so many deaths were being caused by snake bites leads to some like concrete decision changes. So one example is um, trying to develop better antivenom. Mm-hmm. So our current ways to produce antivenom are like over a hundred years old. Uh, we have um, we get a venomous snake, we get it to bite a big animal like a 
horse or a sheep or something. And then in that happens in small quantities. So the horse or sheep can develop antibodies against it. And then we extract the antibodies from their blood and purify them. And then that gets put into anti-venom vials and um, given out worldwide. Um, and the difficulty there is that's very hard to scale up, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But also, it requires you to do this for different species of snakes. Um, and people often don't know which snake species they were bitten by. It might happen very quickly, or they just can't remember or um, describe them very accurately. And so what happens instead is that hospitals tend to keep this um, like multiple antivenoms in the same vial, uh, just against the most common types of snake species. Mm -hmm. But when you do that, that's less effective because you're firstly not clear on which snake it was, but also you're just kind of getting the, the, um, the most common ones. Mm -hmm. And so that tends to be less effective um, even though it's, and it's also more expensive, I think, to have like multiple snake mm. species per antivenom. Um, so this study, for example, and like this new knowledge led to people starting to fund better synthetic antivenom. So in the same way that we have insulin is now produced by yeast, I think, um, it was previously produced through animal um, antibodies. And so this is something that could work here. Mm. Um, but also efforts to make current antivenom supply chains smoother or if efforts to fund these um, this data collection or treat snake bites much better are informed by knowing that it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. So it's just like a value of information thing, right? Like this appears to be a bigger problem than we thought, but also we know more specific things about the kinds of snakes that are <laughs> causing deaths in this example. Right. And so we know we should prioritize the general problem of, for instance, coming up with ways to manufacture antivenom. And we know more about what kinds of antivenom to make. Yeah. That's a good thing to know. It's going to save lives to know it. Right. Okay. So we were talking about causes of death as an example of missing data in global health. I guess there are other examples. Maybe one I would mention is it just seems like we have really imprecise estimates for the like quote unquote excess mortality from COVID. Mm -hmm. So like how many extra deaths did COVID actually cause, especially in countries without very good reporting? So maybe you could say more about that or other examples of missing right. data. Yeah. I mean that's that's a really clear example as well. So um while for example I think a couple of million um COVID deaths have been recorded worldwide, the estimate is that the total number is about twenty three mm. million. But there's like a huge uncertainty around that. So mm. I think it varies between 10 and 30 million or so. Um, and we don't it's really wild. know. Um, uh, and I guess like what's difficult there is that um, in while in rich countries you have this regular death reporting, in poor countries you're usually using censuses and household surveys. And so you can to some degree try to estimate the expected number of deaths per year and then try mm -hmm. to look at how much mm -hmm. how many more deaths are occurring during the pandemic but if you don't have these regular household surveys set up then you're not going to find out what that increase is or what the regular rate would have been um and then the other problem is also 
that like other things could have changed during the same time. So even all of the excess deaths that occurred, we might not be able to attribute all of them to COVID, or maybe there could even be more than that number. So for example, during the pan the first uh, two years of the pandemic, um, levels of flu were incredibly low uh, worldwide. Mm-hmm. And flu usually causes about 300 to 500,000 deaths per year. So removing that as a cause of death and then that would shift the whole baseline, right? And then you might have excess deaths above that. So the total number from COVID could be higher for some reasons, but lower for other reasons. And it's like hard to know how many deaths were actually caused by COVID without this regular reporting. From a like value of information perspective, are there like any particular data sets that like in an ideal world, you or like, um, you know, like the, the public health community at large would like have that you think could like really change um, like policy making decisions? Like, is there something where you're like, oh, if we only had better data on this, I think that could like really make a difference in terms of how we're setting priorities. Yeah, I think um, so. Death registration is probably the biggest one. It feels like it's something that should be easier than other things because deaths are just much more consequential and they have they often have legal implications. It should be fine to get a death certificate for everyone and it's get very it. obvious when someone dies. Right. Um, it's not. Yeah. It's not easy to miss a death like societally, um, and also they're probably the most people think of them as the most like impactful thing that you can make a difference on. Yeah, I think I'm curious more maybe on um, thinking about like specific diseases. I'm aware that like most of this is presumably like unknown unknowns or something. So it's like a bit of a like um, wicked question. But is there like, you know, some disease where we're just we know that we're like very uncertain and it would like make a meaningful difference if it's like on the lower bound or on right. the upper bound of um, um, like that I uncertainty? Think that's often true for like mental illness, for example, mm-hmm. um, where we don't really know the burden of mental illnesses in a lot of poor countries because there aren't these national level surveys on them. Mm. So a lot of our data is estimated for, from other countries where right. we have good data. Yeah. Um, and that's quite tricky because there maybe people will report their symptoms in different ways. Maybe there's more societal taboo around talking about mental health. Mm. Um, and things like that, which mean that if you're just looking at people who are in hospital for a mental illness, you're going to get a completely different number from the people across the population who have it. Um, One thing that I've noticed with looking into specific diseases is even with malaria, the reporting on those, on like how many cases occur often happens when people decide it's a public health thing to control. Mm. So Chickenpox is another example where we don't really have good estimates of how many cases occur worldwide. We only really have them in the countries that have started vaccination programs because they want to look at how effective the vaccination programs are. Right. right, right. So in the US, for example, they started a national um, vaccination in 1995. And they only started doing like large scale reporting a couple of years before that. And so we don't really know like how much it's declined from the decades before, or, like how many cases of chicken box people had before that. Mm-hmm. Maybe how did it change seasonally or whatever. Um, and in many countries, even now, we don't have numbers of cases, even in various European countries or richer Asian countries. 
So on mental illness, I can imagine that some countries are more open, maybe for cultural reasons, um, around talking and especially talking with health professionals about mental health problems, things like anxiety or depression, or relatedly, maybe some countries are going to have more or less taboo around attributing the cause of a death to suicide. And maybe that's a reason for thinking that like mental health disorders or suicides are underreported in some countries more than others. Does that sound right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's like, that's probably true. And there, maybe there's diff- there are different reasons for that. So, um, one of the things that we've been looking into um, at our Willing Data is like this global data set from the Wellcome Trust, where they've just done very basic surveys to just ask people, have you ever had a two-week period in your life where you felt depressed, mm-hmm. um, that depressed enough that you couldn't do your regular daily activities or work? And it seems like the the number of people who say yes to that is actually quite high. It's about uh, 20 to 40% in different countries, mm-hmm. um, which is much higher than the estimates you would have based on just the number of people who are admitted or who report their symptoms to a doctor. Um, and I think it's, it's partly they're just cultural differences in what people think is the right decision to make when they have those yeah. symptoms. Like some people people often will talk to a friend or a family member about that, or they might go to a religious figure and ask for help at a okay. from a priest or something, but they might not go and seek medical treatment. Less medicalized in that sense. Yeah. Um, and then maybe there's also different taboos around how treatable these things are. So if you had schizophrenia or bipolar disorder in a lot of richer countries, you would be able to be treated with... Uh, medication or therapy and things like that. Whereas in a lot of poor countries, maybe you wouldn't have access to that. And then maybe the, the societal consequence of that would be something more severe or uh, ostracization or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so there's this taboo around talking about it, but also this almost rational or like decision to kind of hide it from other people because you're afraid of the consequences. Well, yeah, I guess that's maybe another problem is like, with many diseases it's possible to verify the cause through some other means and then you can like do a small small survey and figure out whether your like survey is valid Mm -hmm. but it's harder to do that in the case of mental health yeah exactly um so and and like this is partly affected by maybe the inherent like symptoms of the disease so for example with smallpox, it's very obvious who has Mm. smallpox because it's just so visible whereas with other things you might need some expensive test testing procedure or something to figure out whether they have it um or you might need to understand other conditions that they have that might have um given them more risk to develop the disease or something like that so if countries or international institutions want to do better at collecting and disseminating useful data in global health are there obvious things that they can do there's a bunch of different things i think Probably the first one is just to have it as a routine part of healthcare. Um, just as something like one thing that people that countries often do is they have some diseases as notifiable. So if a patient comes to a doctor with some rare disease, like maybe they were 
poisoned by anthrax or something. That would be something that the doctor would have to report to the national system um, because that could be a security threat mm -hmm. or something like that. Or if there was a case of malaria in the US again, that would be quickly known at the national level. Um, I think maybe having that process be smoother or for there to just be more regular like ways for that pipeline to take place would be useful. Um, another thing might just be to use other methods to find out how how prevalent the disease was. So sewage testing is one example of that. Mm -hmm. um, so with COVID, but also for polio, you can basically just test sewage to see if that contains some kinds of viruses um, and generally find out whether the levels are rising or declining or mm -hmm. if there's some new strain or something like that. Yeah, these are a great range of topics we've talked about. Um, I'm keen to ask like one personal question, which is you just like write a like, ton of like really great stuff um, about often like really technical scientific issues, uh, but also like really important public health issues. Um, I'm curious, like in terms of this as a skill, if you've got like any advice for listeners looking looking to do the same. Yeah, I think um, uh, I think what's often difficult about it is like it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of a reader and like try to figure out what they don't understand, what's um, what you should be explaining um, that you didn't think of explaining. I think what's helpful for me is that like I have a broad understanding of these different topics, but I'm often learning about them and then explaining them to a reader mm -hmm. soon after that. And so I know the kinds of things that are new and exciting or in interesting to myself. Um, and so I can kind of figure out what would be interested for interesting for a reader. Another thing is to just kind of chat with people about the topic and see what they find surprising or what they don't really understand, what they ask questions about, mm -hmm. um, and then try to elaborate more on those parts. Um, I think in terms of actual writing, what's really helpful is to just have lots of examples. Like I think a lot of writers often use metaphors and things like that, which I find really confusing. <laughs> and I just want like a concrete specific example and you just kind of going through that one example and like really illustrating that one thing um, and making me see how it works. And then I can apply it to other areas. Mm. Can you can you give an example from your own writing where it was useful? So the snake bites is a. Is a <laughs> can you give a metaphor example. of why it's useful? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like I think having this visual illustration, it's like mm. immediately something that you can imagine. Snake bites are things that everyone knows. What, like people know what a snake looks like. Blah blah blah. Mm. They know what the procedure would look like. You can imagine the whole sequence. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing. And then it's often just a case of just explaining things clearly, like mm. breaking up sentences, doing it just step by step. So it's very logical. Um, and often I'll just be reading, I'll be reading over my drafts and thinking like, what's the next thing I expect to read after this? Or mm. what did I not cover? Or um, what questions do I still have unanswered while I'm reading this? And I list them down and just try to answer them all. Awesome. And how do you come up with ideas for like what you want to be writing about? Um, it's often just a mix of like different things I'm reading about. And then maybe it's often things like how impactful it is, how undervalued I think it is, mm. um, how much it would change people's minds if they read it or 
with the case of like missing data, for example, I think a lot of people often focus on like interventions and how effective interventions mm. are. And they're often looking at like the results of clinical trials. Um, but if we don't even know like how many people are dying from the disease, we don't really know how important that treatment could be. Mm. There's so much uncertainty in this other aspect of the, the whole like other side of that equation um, that I thought mm. like this seems like an important thing to talk about. Yeah, that's interesting. When you think of ideas being undervalued, like do you have a reference group in mind that you're like, like going like, oh, these people are like really undervaluing like how important right. this is. Um, like, is this like colleagues? Is this like people on Twitter? Like, what's the... It's often, yeah, it's often people I know. So it's yeah. often like friends and colleagues. And I just think maybe they've just missed this important point or they hadn't thought about it that way. Um, but I think it's also broadly useful. Like people often don't really hear these like public health success stories or they don't know mm. what the actual problems are. Like often the problems just seem quite distant and like gloomy and it's not something they can yeah. solve. And it's useful to actually kind of lay it out and specifically tell them things that they didn't know or things that they didn't appreciate before. Maybe you could elaborate on that like point that lots of people imagine problems in global health as kind of distant or too big or hard to solve? Like, mm -hmm. does that feel like a real impediment to solving them? Um, I, th I think so. Like, I think, so for example, there are just a lot of, a lot of people who just didn't appreciate that it was possible to make vaccines for malaria or vaccines for mm -hmm. TB or COVID. Um, there, there are a lot of problems that we have precedent for solving. Like, obviously that, I think ambition can go a bit too far and you can mm. overestimate how easy it is to solve something, like mm. with DDT, for example. Mm. Um, but at the same time, like knowing that something is possible and that you could get to that end goal, I think is quite stimulating. Yeah. Uh, something related that I've heard you mention is that there is often a bias against... Um, large but let's say incremental or unsexy advances in global health compared to flashy new advances you know like inventing some entirely new intervention um yeah wonder if there are any examples there and also why that matters right um i i think this is just an like this is a vague idea that i have that it seems like a lot of the science reporting in the news is often this is some cool research that's in early stages. It was done in mice or something. Maybe it'll work in like 20 years and it'll change people's lives, but we're just going to tell you about this cool new thing that might work out. And then once it actually happens, there isn't that much of a like retrospective on like how successful it was right, or maybe yeah, how yeah. much it failed or yeah. why did it fail or why did it succeed. Um, and I feel like that kind of story is kind of missing, but it's also something that could raise people's ambitions of what's possible, or at least help them understand why something succeed and fail. Is there any research or topics that you'd be particularly excited about seeing people uh, doing, like potentially listeners, so think uh, young, excited researchers? I think the main one I'm thinking about is synthetic anti-venom. Like, I think that's something that we, that is definitely possible, that just needs more effort and attention. Um, being placed on it and that could happen maybe 10 years, maybe 30 years, and that could be changed by the way that we structure these trials and how much research we do. Um, that's the big one. I think also um, 
probably other vaccines as well that are in the pipeline um, that haven't been developed yet, the TB vaccine, mm. but there are also various other ones that could succeed soon. Um, and then I think also this like missing data problem, like seeing different ways to tackle that, maybe that would be more verbal autopsies or maybe it would be other ways to estimate. So in, maybe it would be sewage surveillance or it could be satellite surveillance in some cases um, of some diseases and that would be valuable. Mm -hmm. What about recommendations? Could you throw out roughly three reading recommendations? Uh, three reading recommendations. Or watching um, or listening? So there's uh, this great podcast that I listen to um, called Meet the Microbiologist. Oh, cool. It sounds very nerdy, but it's just... Um, it's often about like the biographies or the research that specific microbiologists are doing. There was this recent one I listened to on HIV vaccines and like how their development. Um, but there's also like retrospectives on like the person who discovered the cause of AIDS um, as the HIV virus and so on. And that's that's really fun. Um, there's this other book that I found called Eras in Epidemiology, which is great. And it's about like the development of germ theory, but also um, things like how we figured out that smoking causes lung cancer and so on, like all of these different things we learned through research. Um, and then third one, I'm not sure. I feel like I've run out now. <laughs> That's all the things you consume. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could recommend um, your Substack, plus like work in progress and our world and data, both of which you are um, contributing to, and in one case, co-founding. Um, so we'll do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> cool. Great. All right. And last, last question for real. How can people find you and get in touch with you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Salonium, so S-A-L-O-N-I-U-M, or you can email me at saloni at ourworldindata.org, or you can find my substack, um, scientificdiscovery.dev. Okay, Saloni Datani, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Saloni Datani on malaria vaccines and missing data in global health. If you're looking for links or a transcript, you can go to hearthisidea.com forward slash Datani. That is D-A-T-T-A-N-I. Also, if you find this podcast valuable in some way, then probably the most effective way to help is to write an honest review wherever you're listening to this. We would appreciate that. And you can also follow us on Twitter, although we rarely tweet. Uh, we are just at hearthisidea. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. And thank you very much for listening. 